I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, do you want to introduce this session? Yeah, absolutely. This is Forrest, and we all know who Forrest is. Forrest is our resident anthropologist. And Forrest is also our resident anthropologist in Texas who has um, continuing, ongoing um, I don't know, situations, encounters with these. You know, th these things are... They're trespassing on her property, and they're doing things, and they're scaring the heck out of the horses. I'm going to let her tell that, let us know what's going on, because I don't even know exactly what the current situation is. But before we uh, get into that, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in this week. And if you like the show, let us know. Click the like and subscribe, ring the bell. And if you want to support the show, you can do so. We have a link in Patreon and we're making some changes to the Patreon so that we're going to be giving out some uh, some things for the people that are Patreon members. And we also want to start acknowledging uh, our Patreons. Okay, so with that said, Forrest, thank you for being available today. And what are they doing? What's going on out there? Well, I wish they'd behave themselves, but evidently... Um, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> yes, uh, um, evidently so. Well, as you know, I was planning on going and doing something with a girlfriend of mine <clears throat> on Memorial Day. And I guess Mr. Harry out here and his friends had a different uh, idea of how Memorial Day should be, should be celebrated. So um, anyway... <clears throat> I was uh, just getting ready to get into the shower, and um, anyway, <laughs> I look out there, and one of my young horses, he's running up and down the fence line, but he's looking over to the east, and I'm like trying to figure out, well, what in the world is he doing? And I watched him for probably about three or four minutes in here, and then I suddenly see another horse running loose on the other side of the fence, which they should have not been. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to have to go outside and check to see what the heck's going on here. So um, I did, and um, I had three fillies, yearling fillies, out running around loose, and they had been in the back. Uh, I had a loafing shed and um, a pen back there for them, and they had their pen was made out of panels, and anybody that has cattle or horses, they probably know what I'm talking about. They're, they're prefab panels that come in uh, eight foot, ten foot, and twelve foot sections, and these were all twelve foot sections. And we made a, uh, a paddock off the front of the the loafing shed so that these three 
Phillies could stay back there um, on their own. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I'm like, how in the heck did you guys get out? So I walked back there and the pen, these panels were literally laid over. Now, mind you, they were connected by, um, we had posts that were driven into the T posts that were driven into the ground at, at back there. And then we uh, tied each one of the panels off to the, the posts. The ties and everything were still intact. They had not been torn, broken, t uh, cut, or anything. The panels were literally, and the posts too, just laid over. And as we found out later, one of the fillies was really cut up bad. She was cut from uh, the front of her chest all the way back to her hip. And, and evidently where she'd been run, uh, she'd run through these panels. And I'd never... I mean, these, these girls had been back there since they'd been weanlings, so they'd been back there for over a year, and they'd never made any attempt to get out, which it wouldn't even make any sense why they would. They get fed back there. They've got, uh, they've got water back there. They've got a big round bell in their uh, big paddock, so they would have no reason whatsoever to want to get out of there, <clears throat> and so it didn't make any sense to me, and I'm like, I walked around the pen and I'll be honest with you at first, I didn't even, you know, Bigfoot didn't even come to mind. It did kind of later because <laughs> we just, I, I was like, how in the world, even with those fillies, could they have, I mean, they all three of them would have had been pushed against those panels to get them down. One of them couldn't have done it by, by themselves. And I can't imagine that they all three would have gotten together and said, okay, well, let's bust out of here. Um, because they had never done it before. So there would be no reason for them to do it now. Um, and I mean, these panels were literally laid over, just laid over to the ground. I mean, like all, uh, like three of them in a row. And I, I, I went back there and tried to push them up. And of course there was absolutely no way that I could do it. And of course, everybody was gone for Memorial day. So I was like, well, I'll just have to wait till the next day. So I had to uh, just leave a message for uh, Jessica. If she could come by in the morning and we could start trying to put those things up back up. And as it turned out, we had to completely uh, pull the posts out and then redrive the posts back in and straighten everything back up. And, um, we we're going to hope for the best on that one, but they were down out here running around, like uh you know crazy women for and i mean they were they were they were bugged i mean whatever happened had really bugged them uh they were just running around i mean it was like a two-hour session of them just running all over the property so, hey for us i want to i want to yeah. ask a question real quick um for those of us who aren't and i'm i'm in that I'm in that group who don't fully understand what a panel is. Are they wood? Are they metal? No, they're metal. Uh, tell us a they're little metal. bit. They're metal. They're okay. metal. And are they're they kind of like, okay, they're metal and they're made out of like metal pipe? Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, they're all prefab stuff and they come like saying, and uh, I think, you, oh gosh, you can probably get them in a, uh, a Pfeiffer makes them and that's spelled P-F-E-I-F-F-E-R. Uh, and they're made by different manufacturers. Uh, and um, but these particular ones, uh, 
and these particular ones actually are were made by a gentleman that makes John Lyons round pens for him, uh, and they came out of uh, Lagrange, Texas. And this gentleman actually has a uh, muffler factory, and so the pipe is actually uh, made out of the same fabric uh, as a muffler, and uh, so these things are are uh, five feet high. Uh, not anything that uh, these small fillies are going to be jumping over. And, I mean, there's no way that one of them could have pushed those over by themselves. And it would have took all three of them, I mean, really making a concerted effort to, to push them. And um, these things were just pulled over and laid down. So these these panels, so you, you drive a fence post in, you uh, you know anchor it with concrete and then you attach the panels to it. Is that actually, am I right? Actually, no. The the the, the T posts around here we don't uh, unless we don't anchor the T posts with uh, with concrete. The T posts we just drive them in with a post driver and then uh, then the panels are just tied off uh, to them. Some of the panels actually have uh, uh, interlocking uh, devices to to so that they'll lock to each other. But what we did out there was that we tied them off to the t-post so that um because sometimes what would happen is that uh if we put hay or something out there for them some of the other horses would stick their necks through the the openings and then they would pull the panels out and uh, and and kept, they kept enlarging their pen that way by doing that but uh, uh so we found out the way, the only way that we could stabilize it we had to actually tie each of the panels off to a, a t-post driven into the ground okay and so when you tie them off you're using like uh very large zip ties or are you guys using wire or no, we, they were just wired with uh um um there was some that actually were used with uh bailing wire but right. since it's kind of hard to get now we were just using using the the nylon uh bailing uh uh, okay. Strip that use now, but that stuff is. I mean, that's just. I mean, that's really tough stuff. Oh, it so. is. Yeah, it's it's for commercial ranchers, and it's like at your local farm supply, you pick that stuff up. Okay. You, you know so what's... these are very durable panels. Okay. Let, let me jump oh, in yeah. a sec. Um, yeah. Forrest, I just sent you three pictures from our guy in Arizona that's been having a ton of activity. Uh, it just, I, I had to kind of throw this in because. He has a chain link fence at his place, and mm -hmm. it's and it's bolted into concrete. The end post is, and apparently one of these creatures ripped it out of the concrete or broke it off. And and you can see in the picture that it's, um, apparently they attempted to enter his property. So your situation isn't the only one where they've destroyed fencing. So he just he just. Uh Okay, I'm. Um, it takes me a second to get over there. I'm sorry. Oh, no problem. No okay. problem. Yeah, and this is Jason. Yes. Again? Yes. Uh huh. It's a little different type of fence than what you have, but it's well, a. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's it, just a, a regular chain link fence. But right. oh well, yeah. No, but let's just <laughs> let's just move the whole fence. Yeah, uh -huh. it just it just tore it right out of the uh, the mounting. Yeah, I see it. That takes a fair amount of strength to do that. Well, yeah, and <clears throat> even I've even had uh, on a couple of occasions when my stay-ins have been uh, real, uh, 
what's the word I can use on air, uh, bad boys. Um, and I'd had them in that round pen um, made out of the, the John Lyons panels. We actually disassembled that and used it to make a paddock for these girls. Uh, but I'd had, uh, on one occasion, had uh, one of them actually jump up on it. He couldn't make it over. It was they're really high, so he couldn't make it all the way over. So he kind of got hung on the top rung. And even then, he just barely, I mean, you're talking an 1,100, 1,200-pound horse. He just barely made a, a, a dent in that, uh, that panel. So these panels aren't just easily, um, you know, easily destroyed. I mean, you've got to put some force behind them. But, I mean, they just, they were laid over. I mean, it was just, and it wasn't like the girls had made any attempt to jump over them, as far as I could tell. It looked like they just got... Uh, you know, something, I don't think they pull, I don't think they pushed it down. I think something pulled it down and then they ran out is exactly what I think. Cause I went back there and I was just, I was pushing, pushing, pushing. I was like, uh, I'm not going to be able to do this. <laughs> I can't. Of course, here's this. another uh, critical element to all this. And that is the time that this happened. This, this yeah, was not a nighttime in the afternoon. Did you hear anything? No, I didn't hear a thing. But then now we've been having 100 degree temperatures there here. So I had the the house was closed up and I had the air conditioner going. But I didn't hear I didn't hear anything, Tom. Not a thing. And so and, and those and kind I of temperatures. I've been aware about aware of it until I had gone outside, uh, you know, to get in the. Uh, I you know I had I not seen that cold running up down the the fence line. And that was the first, right? Seeing the colt in that agitated yeah, I had, state. I, I had never seen him acting like that. He was running, and the only reason he was running up down the fence line was because those those little girls were over on the other side running up down the fence line. Okay, and when you have hundred degree temperatures like that in Central Texas, pretty unlikely that you have pranksters running around. There'd be a lot of effort to do that, well, and think- in the middle of the day, they're not going to do it. Well, I think that uh, if they had any sense, they'd pick a cooler time of day to be doing it, you'd think. Right. But, I mean, if they if they were going to do that, Tom, it would have been just as easy. It would have been a lot easier to take a knife and cut those all those nylon straps. Right. Oh, no, exactly. And and the other point I'm trying to make is it's, I'm just trying to eliminate that as a possibility. Plus, I'm just going out on a limb here. I'm betting in central Texas pranksters doing something like that. Everybody packs. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they do so, on my property. So, <laughs> um, huh. I mean, you know, Jessica, she's ex-Army, and uh, and Sherry and Sam have both got license to carry, and uh, I I now carry every time I go out. So, yeah, we have open right. carry law in this state. So, you know. <laughs> um. Okay, so this happens in the middle of the day, and it's, you know, as you described, it's, it's just very unusual. You, you just couldn't do that. This is a very, very sturdy panel fence set up. So what else happened? You had mentioned something about oh, yeah. a tree. Yeah, the tree. Well, Tuesday when Sherry and Sam came by, I um I have a, a line of hackberries that run along 
uh, the fence line in front of the barn. And I was actually, had been, <laughs> a couple of them have some limbs that really stick out. They were kind of low. And I was talking about, I was going to go out there. And so we walked down the fence line and uh, I was like, this one tree way down on the end, I said, it had the two limbs that were sticking out that were really low. And I said, I'm going to get out here with my little hand. I have a little hand chainsaw and um, I was going to cut that, those two limbs off. And so Sherry and I were just talking about that. So we walked up and down that fence line. Well, <laughs> yesterday morning when uh, we were going to run to town and do some shopping and so Sherry showed up and Sam was uh, feeding the horses and Sherry came and she says, uh, okay, you got to come out here. I got to show you this. I said, okay. So I go out there and lo and behold, there's this tree, one of the hackberries on the other end. Now, this is not the one that had the limbs that were sticking out that I was going to cut. This is way on the other end, other end. She says, look at this. She says, how do you think that happened? Because she says, it wasn't there yesterday when we were walking up and down looking at these trees. And now this is Tuesday. And it had to have happened. I mean, Wednesday, excuse me. It had to have happened Tuesday night because it wasn't that way Tuesday when we were walking that fence line. It's completely, I mean, it's it's probably a tree about a foot around. Um. And it's perfect. It was perfectly healthy because, I mean, we walked down there and looked. I thought, well, is it rotten? I mean, we were looking at it and everything. It's not rotten inside. It was green inside. And the tree had all live. It was all live on top of it. And I just, I was like, it was kind of twisted and then pushed down. And I'm, she and I both just sat there and I was like, what? What she said, well, what do you think did it? And I kind of looked at her, and she kind of looked at me, and we both just kind of went, oh, no. And, you know, my thing is, why? Because actually it, did, it didn't push the tree out like it was blocking anything. It just pushed the tree over, and it actually fell into, uh, uh, pushed it over onto another tree. So, I, I mean, we hadn't had any storms here. We hadn't had any bad weather or anything Well, see, like you're that, taking the words... So. That's, that was the next question I had is, do you ever get very highly localized tornadoes oh, that yes. hit just they, one tree? So localized, they hit one tree out of the whole, whole All right, I'm just checking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, no, <laughs> if we got, I would be, we got some rain here uh, last week, but I, I'd be thrilled to death if we, I'd even take a little high wind if we, if we could get some rain, but. Uh, that's one thing that we are lacking right now is rain. So, so I, I don't, I just don't understand it. And those hackleberry trees, I just want to mention, yeah, I mean, that's a deciduous hardwood. Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And, it, and it that happened in what kind of a time frame? Uh, this, uh, that was, it had to have been Tuesday night because uh, Tuesday when we walked up and down the fence line, and that was about oh, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, somewhere in that vicinity in the afternoon. Um, everything was fine. And then Wednesday, she just happened to see it. She had dropped uh, Sam off down by the barn and then was driving back up. And as she, she was going through the gate, she just happened to look over and she thought, well, that wasn't that way yesterday. 
<clears throat> and that's when she uh, she pulled up to the house, and then she called me. She says, when you come out here, I want to show you something. So, yeah. And and the fence happened yesterday, correct? Which is no, Wednesday? No, the fence happened Monday. <clears throat> okay, so the fence happened Monday. Monday the on the morning. next day, we get the tree incident. Yeah. And as far as I know, nothing's, nothing happened last night. As far as I know. Right, right. No, that's... I was just hoping that this was all going to stop. That they'd maybe because it was so hot, might have moved on someplace else. And, and you know what? I've been giving this a lot of think, I, thinking and pondering on this. I'm just wondering, and, and, and uh, Will, you put your two cents in here on this one. Are you, is it possible? Well, I know it's possible, but what I'm thinking is that maybe we've had a alpha change. Mm-hmm. <coughs> That's happened in a number of places where there's been a, like a consistent behavior over whatever time period. And then all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of different kinds of behavior, very different than what the status quo had been. So that's my thinking. Occasionally we get an alpha change. And or maybe could, they just have misbehaving children right now. Could be. I mean, I, I don't know what they allow them to do as they grow. I mean, I'm sure they... You know, let them explore and do things. Maybe they could explore in your area better than my area. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if they let them import them here. I think we have enough. <laughs> well, I'm thinking maybe I, I'd even buy them free plane tickets or something. <laughs> oh, can you imagine that? Sir, would you mind putting on a mask? Oh, <laughs> oh pardon me. You've oh, already got God. one on. <laughs> Oh Lord, I don't. I just. I don't know. The whole thing has just gotten me totally frustrated. I, it's like every day. What am I going to go out and find today? Well, it, it's like places when we, exp uh, you know, I had the investigation at places like Yakult, Washington. I used that one because it was such a classic, uh, you know, situation and lasted so long. A lot of places they don't last that long, but. In that one, it was exactly the same thing. Every day there was something different that happened. Now, this is where you lived in Yakult? I lived in Vancouver at the time. Uh, Yakult's uh, a little bit north of there. Mm-hmm. So we had, a, we had a family that had, uh, they had a sighting, and then there was a series of things that went on after I went there and then started the investigation with the family. And... Um, I brought my team in there, and, and it was just an ongoing thing. And there was stuff that happened, different things that happened almost daily there. Well, I, I even tried to think, and Sherry and I actually talked about this on the way to town, that what I possibly have could, what I have possibly done different around here that might be uh, agitating them. I mean, maybe they don't like me carrying my weapons out there now. You know, it's really hard to tell. I mean, it's hard to tell why they fixate on a place. Well, Tom and I kind of talked about this. Um, Chuck and I actually talked about this, and he was kind of getting 
Chuck was actually voicing a little fear for me. And I think, Tom, you and I talked about this as far as in relationship to Carol's situation in Missouri. Right. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that um, that there's not a. This is less mischievous than it is maybe sinister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could very well be. I mean, not all situations are, you know, violent. I mean, um, if they were going to do some kind of violence, they probably would have ramped up by now. That's not to say they won't, but they haven't done it. So uh, it could be a younger group for sure. Well, yeah, I'm just thankful that they hadn't uh, hadn't tried to harm the horses. But then, too, you know, with what happened back there in that pen, I had those three young fillies back there, and they're actually back. They're way back at the corner of uh, one section of my property across from the barn, and they're as far back as they can go uh, to where the fence line runs into the next person's property. And then my property kind of makes a corner there like a, an L and goes way back there. And that is actually the corner where Travis saw that uh, one standing that time and then started swaying when he started looking at it. And um, so it kind of makes me wonder if maybe they did have sinister you know, they actually were going to try to do something to those fillies, and those fillies got away, and that was the reason they were running around here acting so crazy. And if there is an alpha change in the group, um, that could change what they were planning to do also. Well, I, I, I know that their groups aren't probably a democracy, but I'm going to put my vote in if they, they, they move their uh, cells to another territory. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, I'm I'm kind of at a loss right now. I really am. And like I say, I just I, every morning I just kind of wake up and go out there. Okay, what what am I going to find today? <laughs> you know, it'd be interesting if um, I don't know, maybe get Jessica or uh, Sherry to help put in a couple of cameras around because they seem to avoid the infrared webcams. I don't know. I'm just I'm just throwing out ideas. It may be a good one. Maybe it's not. But well, actually, um, I I pulled down one of my my game cameras last night, and uh, I'm I, I was just going to do just that is uh, put up a a, a game camera uh, pointed at that area and see if that might in fact help the situation. I don't know. It's worth a try. Uh, yeah, I had one of my, I did have uh, four game cameras, and I've had a, uh, a game camera that just suddenly disappeared, so I don't know where it went to, but, um, and I don't think Bigfoot took it, but. <laughs> no, not likely. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> I'm going to have a fortune in game cameras here before too long, putting one here, putting one there. <laughs> Pointed at everything around me. <laughs> so, and I, the other thing I thought about was that that uh, might even be a less expensive thing to do is to put some of those solar lights out there on either side of that. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, loafing shed. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that was something. Yeah, I, I actually thought about that last night. Yeah. Yeah, because they, um, you know, if they if there's lighting out there, they'll that'll be a deterrent somewhat anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have electricity all the way down there, so I have to go to one of those uh, the solar ones. But those those actually work real well. I've had one on the end of my barn that has been down there for um, years, and it's still it's probably been out there for five years, and it's still working. Yeah. Well, of course, this is an interesting development, and um, I don't know where you know I I don't know where to take it at this point. Uh, sodium lamps, uh, solar solar lights, that sort of thing might be a good idea. It's just odd that they did it in the middle of the daytime. I mean, that's that's as bright as it gets. Well, and that's yeah. that's another whole you know part of the behavior issue that um, we don't know what's going on because typically they won't do it in broad daylight. But you know, there are different circumstances, and it's something we don't. Well, know. Yeah, I mean- I'm oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's no, just something we don't know about yet. Well, the situation with Sherry out there. I mean, uh, that was like one thirty in the afternoon. So, um, I mean, they're obvious. It's odd. It must be pretty obvious that they're at, they're watching mm-hmm. around. And that's not to say that they're not watching the other places too. And I, you know, um, since I don't have a neighbor over to the, the the west anymore that I can talk to um, I did and when when I had those two uh, fillies that had gotten out that uh, one day that decided to go down to my neighbor's house um, that was before we moved them all into the back pasture um, the I'd ask actually ask him if uh, he'd had any situations. Uh, peculiar situations going on and he and he hadn't but then um, you know I don't know that he necessarily would have noticed anything uh, because he doesn't have any cattle or anything else out there on his property and uh, so it's not like he would have uh, anything to be you know Bigfoot to be messing with he doesn't have any pets either so right and now, and the other neighbor uh, that's to the northeast of me, uh, he keeps his gate locked all the time. And I think you know the situation with that one. Uh, well, the sheriff don't even like to go in there on his property, so uh, I, I'm not going to go back there to talk to him. And he's the one that Bigfoot could take him. I wouldn't care. And the right. sheriff's department yeah. would probably be happy. <laughs> Telling you, they do have some some useful purposes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Forrest, um, so we're going to be talking again in a couple of days, if not sooner. Just take care of yourself. Um, oh, I will. <laughs> yeah, who, who knows yeah. what will happen between now and the weekend, right? <laughs> oh, well, this is true. <laughs> we have two more days. That's right. <laughs> I could provide lots of excitement. Who Plenty knows? Plenty of things to happen yet. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yes, it is. That's what I was, what I was saying. I just I, every morning when I go go outside to let the cats out, I just go, oh, my, what am I going to go out here and find today? <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I don't know. It's like, come on, my hairy friends, go find somebody else to bug for a while. <laughs> it would be interesting to find out what is it that about your property that is drawing them in that they're attracted to. And well, it's just your property. We don't know that. No, that's true. You don't know that it's just my property. You know, I've got all those heavy, heavy cedars. In fact, I even talked to a cedar company. Um, and um, I don't have enough cedars. It's just 25 acres back there. They say it's not enough cedars for them to come cut down. Um, but, uh, I mean, it looked like an awful lot to me. But anyway... Uh, I'm not the one doing the cutting, but uh, I actually have been calling around to some of the cedar companies here to see if they'd come clear all that out back there for me. And um, because they've got those cedars back there, and I'm telling you, Tom, you go back there in that stuff, and you can, uh, you know, there's paths that are cut through there. And I'm sure that that may be where they're they're coming through there, And uh, but you could crawl in there. And it is so dark. Well, have you seen just the ones up here around the house on the other yeah, yeah. yeah. side oh, yeah. of the house? Oh, my gosh. It's just black in there. You can't see anything in there. And um, so I have a sneaking suspicion that, and, and those cedars during the heat of the day, you wouldn't think it, but they're actually really, it's really cool back in there. Oh, and, sure. I, it it would know, drop a few degrees, Yeah. Yeah. They go crawl up in there and shoot. They could sleep and have you know good little nap time, and um, nobody'd ever see them, and nobody to bother them. So I'm I have a feeling that that might have something to do with it. Uh, the other properties around here are cleared out. So um, and then but you have to go a little ways down the road to the west, and then you've got all these big ranches. And of course. I mean, yeah, yeah, they've got pastures and stuff like that, but they got plenty of uh, plenty of uh, cedar breaks in there too. So, and that was actually where I had seen that uh, when going across the road down there, that went into uh, one of those pastures uh, of a ranch just uh, did that a little ways down the road from me here. So, um, you you know they got to be traveling up and down here and i think i even sent you that picture of that uh, uh metal bigfoot that's down the road here that somebody's got in their pasture so you know what i don't think i'm the only one seeing them around here maybe i'm just the only one talking about it so yeah that's what i think and it's too bad that the topic is currently it's a situation at the point where you, you can't bring it up because these things anything um in secrecy can thrive but if you can bring it out and discuss it then you can you know two heads are better than one you guys can come up with a plan and and you know that sort of thing so i don't know do you know your neighbors i mean do you know any of the other ranchers around there and tell them you know have a have a discussion with them, have a conversation about you don't have to say what you think it is just discuss the evidence the the panels and everything else well i tell you one of the problems i actually thought about this one day i thought well, well i'll just drive down the road and i'll see uh one of the big ranches around here duncan d they don't even have anybody that i think that even lives out there anymore on that place um do they have livestock then, well they've got livestock out there they have they have 
uh, foremans and stuff that come out there and tend to the stuff, but all those gates are locked. I mean, it's not like you can just drive in there and go back there and try to find somebody. Uh, and that's, that was the other problem that I was running into is because a lot of them, um, and now I did, I had one too, was one of the automatic, the solar operated, uh, gate panels where you put it, push in a code to, to come in. And I actually, what I ended up getting was one of those, like, it's like a, uh, overhead door, uh, garage door opener that you just put on your, uh, your truck and you just punch it and it would open the gate for me. Well, they, when the, the house burned, the fire truck actually broke the armature on my gate and I haven't been able to find anybody that wants to come out and just fix the armature on my gate. Uh, they want to sell me a whole new four, four or $5,000 system. And it's like, all I need is just an armature guys. Come on. I don't need the whole system. My system still works. Just give me the armature. Well, anyway, most of these people, they all have them and you can't, you can't get into their property. I mean, I drove down and I was like, Hmm, everybody's got a gate <laughs> and they're all closed. <laughs> so, and you just don't drive in on people's property in Texas. No. Okay. If you don't know, mm-hmm. if you don't know them, you don't, you just don't invite yourself in. <laughs> Cause I'm okay. sure they're all having the same problems that I have had too. I do have illegals that come through here, but I can guarantee you. Illegals didn't take that fence down out there. They would have had no reason. First off, if they'd have been looking to steal something, they would have been out there uh, trying to attract attention to themselves by pulling uh, fence panels over. Sure. Well, it's an interesting and, like you said, kind of a sinister dilemma that you guys are that you're facing there. And we feel for you. That's the thing. You know, Will and I both. Um, Gosh, you know, we wish there was something we could reach out and and help you with this situation, other than just the you know a few suggestions we've offered. Well, but I really think. (laughs) Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I really think having a conversation at some point with other ranchers. I don't know how you do it, whether you have a you know where you can reach them online or anything like that, and. Just say, hey guys, we're you know here's here's what I'm experiencing, and you never know. I can't imagine you're the only one. Well, you know, I think you're right. I don't think I am either. Um, there's, I I I hesitate to think that too many people to the east of me are having problems because they've they've uh, got that property almost all of it subdivided it's like cut into small sections like five four or five uh ten acre plots down there so they're on smaller acreage than what i've got here so i i i hesitate you know of course now we've heard plenty of stories about people having problems with on smaller uh plots of land too so uh they i i just can't imagine because as close as they live in to eat proximity to each other down east of me here that they are having issues um but i would think that if you know what if they're coming in i think they're coming in from the west is what i think because that's where all the the lakes and all those uh, uh state parks and everything else are down there and there's just hundreds thousands of acres out there that there's there's nobody in you know and that's where they got to be coming from. Uh, I would agree. Uh, I would think that 
that would make sense. Forrest, we're going to have you back on in two days. And I really, really wish that those are going to be two quiet days. Very quiet. Well, I hope so, too. I thought y'all were going to have some epiphany and you were going to have some solution to the problem. <laughs> well, we'll keep we'll keep working on it. It's a different <laughs> twist than coming in broad daylight. Well, now, has Carol had that issue with hers out there? Now, I don't oh, remember yeah. hers. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's had daylight. Oh, my. Yeah, we need we need to set it up where we have you two together talking because I, I think comparing notes and then you know things that you could tell her uh, would be very beneficial for her. Well, I try. I have been doing what uh, Tom and uh, another individual had uh, suggested that I do, and I have been doing that religiously, Tom. And I kind of wondered if maybe that might have made them mad but you know what they're just going to have to be mad about that that's all there is to it because uh, i'm not gonna i'm just not going to tolerate this nonsense anymore uh you know if if they want to come around you know what if they want to come around in window peak and be quiet about it i don't care as long as you're not bothering me i don't care you know but when they want to start tearing up stuff in the barn and, you know, that was something else that I thought about, too, because, you know, we chained that barn shut, and um, they can't get into that barn anymore. And I don't know if that has anything to do, it or not, do with it or not, but you'd have thought that we would have seen some repercussion from that, you know, earlier than this. But, um, you know, they want to come around and do stuff and be quiet about it and just walk through or sit around and watch us and me and the horses and all that. I don't have a problem with that. Just don't bother me. You know, I guess that sounds crazy, but just don't bother me. You know, I don't care. Well, that's what everybody wants. Yeah, that'd be I the perfect be solution. It'd just be yeah. nice and quiet and everybody would be happy. <laughs> we can all live together. <laughs> just don't tear up stuff. Right, right. Yeah, don't now hurt the animals and don't hurt you. <laughs> all right, well, listen, um, we're going we're gonna to wrap it up. But we're going to talk in a couple days, and I'm honestly I'm hoping there's not an update in two days. Well, I hope there's not either. I really do. I just want them to be nice, flat little boys and girls, and mind their own little <laughs> bigfoot, bigfoot business. <laughs> Well, let us know if anything happens between now and the weekend. Oh, I will. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and we'll wrap this up and we'll chat again in a couple of days and we'll see what happens. Okie dokie. All right. All right, take care for us. Okay, bye-bye. In Bigfoot history, Lolo Pass, Idaho, Montana, border, date unknown. A woman who spoke to Roger Patterson in Richland, Washington, said that she and others saw a dark gray, human-like creature standing, swinging its arms back and forth beside the road at night. Her car and another slowed as they went past it, then it strided away up a rocky cliff. <laughs> Thank you.
back from the break. So, between the time we recorded the first segment and with Forrest's um, issues happening there in the update, and we wondered if more things would happen, didn't we, Tom? Yeah, we did. And they did. So you want to go ahead and kick that off? Yeah, I will. I'd like to do that. So before we get started, I want to thank everybody for tuning in this week. And if you like the show, let us know. Click the like and subscribe. The algorithm loves that. And if you want to support the show, you can do so with Patreon. And we're making some changes to our Patreon accounts for all of our Patreons. And that said, oh. I am going to hand this off to Before you get Forrest. started, Tom, let me mention that, folks, for those who have been asking, we had already planned to have Janae on again next week for part two, so stay tuned for that on next weekend's show. Yes, yeah, that'll be good. All right, so I'm going to hand this off to Forrest. In the last 24 hours, Forrest, what's been going on? Well, um, I'm assuming that you're referring to the door and I need to backtrack a little bit because that picture of that door was actually taken previous to the, um, um, the incident with the pins because, um, and that was my boo-boo because I was going to send that to you. And I, I just completely forgot about it. Um, I guess like I was joking with you guys earlier, uh, I guess senility has set in, um, you know, I just completely forgot to send that picture to you, but uh, it was actually happened on May the 11th was when she noticed that. And that was uh, on the cat house door, and uh, you've got the pictures. You can see the, the handprints up there, and it's way up near the top of the door. And, I mean, uh, she sent me a picture, and I actually went out there uh, that evening, and I looked at it, and I was like, I was trying to reason in my mind why, first off, would anybody, any of us, put dirty handprints on the, the door in the first place and, uh, and swipe them down the door? Um, and secondly, why would we have put them way up there, you know? Uh, and, and everybody pleaded total ignorance to, to how it happened and, uh, you know, why it happened, because nobody, not Jessica, not Sherry, not uh, Sam, and of course, not myself had any knowledge of ha it having happened. So, uh, or I, I don't know why. Uh, evidently, something had tr attempted to uh, push the door open. And there have been on three occasions since that particular picture had been taken that I found the cat house door open. Now, um, this is something that did exact. <laughs> Uh, they, the girls were complaining that there was cat food missing in there and that there was bags of cat food. Because when I go buy cat food, I buy like 20, 30, 40 bags of cat food <clears throat> bags. You know, we're talking uh, 16 pounders from uh, Pet Supplies Plus. And um, so they were saying that we seem to be going through an awful lot of cat food. And so last night, it had rained here a couple of days ago, so I decided to go out and burn some of my bags. Because used to, I could take them into Austin, and um, Whole Foods actually processed those plastic bags into cutlery, you know, the plastic cutlery. Well, they don't do that any longer, so I just burned my bags. And um, I was getting ready to do that, and I was sitting out there, and 
I actually hadn't burned any bags in because we've had a burn ban here for uh, about two months now, so I hadn't burned any. And I, I was walking around picking up some of the, the nylon netting that uh, the round bales come in, and I thought, well, I'll just throw this on there too. And because we can't recycle that stuff, I don't know why they won't take it. We can't recycle it, so I was just going to burn it. And I look out there and I see something pink and underneath the, the cedar trees back there. And actually, there was more than one, but I couldn't get to the, the others that were back there uh, without crawling in there on my hands and knees. And it was still muddy from the rain and stuff. And frankly, I just didn't want to do that. So that was the only excuse I have, guys. Um, but this bag was laying close to me underneath the cedar trees. And I pulled it out. And lo and behold, it was one of the cat food bags that had had the top of it ripped open and I thought hmm this is what was in the cat house why would this bag be out here because if I had never seen it before out there and there would be no reason for it to be out there unless something drug it out there and that's exactly what I think happened I think they'd been going in that cat cat house and uh taking cat food out of there and they drug them and there was more there's more of them it looks like another couple of bags laying under the trees but like i said i didn't want to get out on my hands and knees and crawl out there and uh get the bags so i left them and uh but i did pull that one out that uh and i, I didn't see any handprints or anything like that so i did i threw it on the burn pile but we've since changed the locks on that cat house and put a deadbolt on it so who knows? I may come out there and find the whole thing smashed in. So, Horace, um, let me ask you real quick, because that's the question I have. How did they get in? I mean, they it's almost as if they opened the door. Was the door locked previously when they got the bags? No, no, it, it wasn't locked. We, did, we hadn't been keeping it locked because actually I had I used to have a key to that. And I could not find the, the key to the door. And because uh, we'd all been discussing about the fact that uh, bags of cat food were disappearing mysteriously. Uh, so we had thought, well, maybe the best thing to do, you know, and of course, I'm going to say this. I mean, we thought maybe some there was a human stealing it. Of course, I couldn't imagine why in the world a human would come all the way over to my property to steal cat food. But, uh, you know, I guess stranger things have happened. But anyway, um, I just, you know, I had talked to Jessica. I said, do you think we could change this lock out? And because I can't find the key to that lock. And we didn't want to lock it for fear that, you know, we'd lock ourselves out of there. Uh, so that's why she actually uh, went and got another lock and a deadbolt. And we've since changed the lock out and added a deadbolt to it. Huh. Um that's a strange bit. I would almost say, I would, you know, I wonder if, um, you know, don't lock it, but lock up the cat food in the barn or someplace else. But then, you know, you had three cats missing and you found their bones underneath that tree. I don't know. Well, it's what they do. Yeah, I, you know, that, those cats, those I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, Will. I apologize. Oh, no, I was just going to say, Go that's what they do. They they come into areas we see it frequently, 
they take the pets, they take the pet food, they'll take other food, you know, for livestock, they'll take salt blocks. Do you have, you have salt blocks out there, Forrest, for the horses? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Have, uh-huh. have you noticed oh, yeah. them being broken up or anything lately? <clears throat> Uh, no, my horses go, because of the heat, we've got, my horses go through a lot of salt around here. Okay. And I, and to be frank, frank with you, I hadn't even given that a thought oh, about that. Yeah, take a look at them once in a while. Okay. I, you know, that would be a perfect place for a game camera, wouldn't it? Well, so I would. Yeah, uh, yes. And, and actually, I, I, really, I, I'm, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I know that's. You know, oh, what a great idea, Milo. Oh, wait. <laughs> uh, well, the guys had you know, already suggested that I put a game camera out there so I can watch that to, uh, the, the, the pen with the, the fillies, and I'm going to do that. I'm also going to get some motion lights and put them down there. Um, and um, I'm going to, ha- I guess, I'm going to have to get an amount of game camera someplace else. I've, I had three game cameras and one of them has turned up missing. I have no idea where it disappeared to. Um, I think was it in the house or was it outside? No, it was, it was actually out on a a tree out here and it just disappeared. So um, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard of them actually stealing game cameras, but yeah. uh, yeah. How did you have it fastened uh, to the tree? That was my next question. Well, I mean, I used the, 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 you know, the, the belt type, uh, things that they have, you know, right, right. that actually came with it. Yeah. And I mean, it was secure. So, uh, well, but I guess, it'd you be know, interesting to see, to look at the, look at the bottom of the tree. If you see fragments or remnants of the belt of the strap. Um, well, there was nothing like that. It was just gone. The entire just, thing yeah. was gone. So that's why I thought I was thinking human probably stole it. So could be, um, yeah, because you know I do have problems with uh, illegals coming through here. We all do up and down here. So, um, but I can't imagine that they've taken to eating cat food. So, um, I, I, you know, that's kind of strange. You know, I would almost, I hate to say it, I'd almost say I would have one bag, I'd mark it with a big S, and that would be the sacrificial bag that you may want to put some additives in there. Just that's be creative, <laughs> whatever you want. <laughs> I like it. No, you probably probably don't want to do that. <laughs> Castor oil, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Oh heavens, I don't know. I just you know it's, the whole thing has been, uh, and, and just a recap of, uh, uh, I guess that's probably what you wanted me to do on the, the pen. And this was one thing that Jessica, uh, Sherry and their, their, uh, uh, Jessica's dad all said they could not figure out. I mean, they were all standing around scratching their head when they went down there to repair that. Cause they got here early Tuesday morning to start on that. Uh, cause we needed to get those fillies up cause they were just running around like crazy. But, uh, um, you know, when I told you that I had walked down there, and it was one thing I forgot to say when we talked uh, the last time, and I didn't think about it until we were talking afterwards, that when I was walking back down there to see what the heck had happened and why the Phillies were out, and 
I saw all these panels laying down and they were all still tied to the post. And one of those posts was actually cemented into the ground and it was laid over too. And um, the Phillies, I mean, about 40 or 50 feet from that pen, they all stopped. They were all walking along. I mean, just practically glued to me. And um, when I got about 50 feet from that pen, they stopped and they wouldn't go any farther. They just watched me walk up there. And they didn't want to go up there at all. So something had scared them terribly. And I can't imagine even in fright that they were able to push those panels down because no, those panels were not untied. They were not torn. They were not ripped. They were literally just laid over the posts as well. So, um, and then it was um, Tuesday. It had to have been Tuesday night because Sherry and I had walked up that other fence line Tuesday and we were looking at some low hanging tree, uh, tree limbs there. And I said, well, I was going to get my little hand chainsaw out and I was going to go out there and cut those limbs down. And so we had actually walked that fence line. And when Wednesday morning, when we were going to go to town, Sherry called me up. She says, when you come down here, I have something I need to show you. So, when I walked out there, she says, come here and look at this. And here's this hackberry tree that was, it was twisted and pushed down once uh, there was like three of them coming out of uh, the root system. That's how hackberries do. They will have uh, three or four sprouting out of one uh, root system. And we had not had high winds. There was absolutely no reason for this thing to have come down. And it was all green growth, perfectly healthy green growth on the top of it because we looked at that too. And she says, what do you think? And I said, I don't know. What do you think? She says, I think the same thing you're thinking right now and, and, you know, did this because she says, there hasn't been any high winds and we haven't had any storms come through here that would have pushed this down. How high off the ground is that, Forrest? Huh? How high off the ground is that? Oh, I'm going to say it was about two and a half feet off the ground was where it was pushed down at. It didn't, it didn't start at the, the, down at the root system. No, uh, uh, it was, it was two, two and a half uh, feet off the ground. And I still got to get that picture to, uh, to Tom. It, it, it rained here yesterday and today, uh, for a good portion of the day. Thank heavens. And, uh, I just hadn't got out there to do that for him yet. Yeah, but uh, last night was the only uh, peculiar thing that I uh, noted was uh, when I went out to burn those uh, bags and uh, hay round round hay bale nets that I noticed. I just happened to look over and I saw that pink. Well, the pink was what caught my eye because the bags are pink and white. And I thought, I thought, what is that laying over there? And I walked over and I went, huh, that's that's a a mittens cat food bag and the whole top of it had been ripped off and we don't usually do that when we open up we just open a corner and then we pour them into the we have gravity feeders in the cat house and then we just pour it into that like that we don't tear the whole top off so i was like okay wonder how this got out there and that's when i looked up and I started really looking around i saw those other bags over there under the trees and i thought oh Okay, well, I think I know where my cat food's been going to. 
How big are the bags, just out of curiosity? Uh, there's there's 16-pound bags. Okay, the big ones. Yeah. I mean, that's that's as far as I know, that's the largest they make the mittens in. I mean, it's possible they make them in a larger size, but uh, that's that's uh, that's the size I buy from. So the question I have, I want to get back to that door for just a second. So okay. the door, it's not locked. It, it doesn't have a latch or anything, or, or excuse me, it doesn't have a uh, deadbolt. So when you go out there, I'm assuming the door is closed when you got in the morning or when, whenever it is to let the cats out. Is that is that accurate? Yes. Uh, what I have is uh, I have a setup so that you go in the front door, and they all have standard door uh, doorknobs on them. Uh, just a standard, you know, doorknob. And you go in, and there's a four-foot section by uh, the cat house is uh, uh, 18 feet wide, and it goes back about 32 feet. And you walk in, and there's a four-foot, I'm going to say four, four-and-a-half feet section in the front that is closed off from the next section, which is an interior section. And... Um, and then there's another door that you go through into the interior section. Now, the front part of that is where I keep my supplies. I have a cabinet for all the uh, veterinarian needs for the cats. And then off to the uh, right-hand side, I have a pallet, and I stack all my um, uh, cat food and such on that. And uh, litter and everything else for that section out there. And then you go through that next door, and that's in the enclosed area, and that's where they can get when there's bad weather and when it's cold. And then there's a third door that you go out into their play area, and that's an all that's all screened in out there. Oh, okay, so the cats have a little play area that they can go play, but they can't get beyond that, right? They can't wander the. Oh property. no, they can't want. No, those guys are those cats that are out there are totally feral, and I keep them in there that way because uh, uh, the the really feral cats go in there because I have had uh, on one occasion I did have a, a rabid skunk out here that we had to kill, and um, so I had to go through revaccinating every animal on the property, and the only ones that I didn't have to revaccinate were the ones that were in the cat house because the lady with the state said that since they weren't out and weren't able to be exposed to uh you know yeah any other any other uh varmints or anything like that then she wasn't going to worry about them but uh and those vaccinations they're not really cheap when you multiply them times 14 or whatever no that was uh, because i revac at the time i had two pet goats i had uh i don't even remember how many head of horses i had probably as many as i've got now or more and it cost me, by the time I did all the cats um, and horses and uh, the goats, uh, it cost me the tune of about $4,500. Now, the, the horses and the goats, I could actually give the shots to them myself. That wasn't a problem. They will let, uh, you know, owners do that. But the cats and dogs had to all be vaccinated by a vet so that licensing uh, could be provided. Yeah, that's the same thing it used to be able to, you can do it yourself here in Oregon. Now you got to have a vet do it. So yeah, you can't do that anymore. All right. Well, listen, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it keeps the vets busy. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I kind of understand why they do that. Okay. 
So I'm going to throw some questions out here. This is from our readers, our listeners out there, I should say. Um, Will, and also a little bit for um, Forrest, is there any evidence that Sasquatch can use caves in areas where they're available for shelter or hiding? Obviously, it'll depend on geography, but there appear to be a lot of older stories about Bigfoot being trapped or pursued into caves by Indians in the past. Well, there was there was the one story. I think you're you're familiar with that one, Forrest. Uh, but as I, I've been all over and seen, especially southern Washington, where there's a lot of lava tubes, a lot of caves there. I have never seen any evidence of anything using those. We got them here in Oregon as well. But I'll be honest with you, I have not climbed into these caves to find out what's in there. Oh, I've I've been in lava tubes, but. There's nothing, no indication whatsoever they've been used by anything. Okay. Is there any evidence that Bigfoot builds shelters, either temporary or semi-permanent, that they could use for warmth, cover, or hiding? Many primates do this, even bears. So it seems that an intelligent animal like Bigfoot uh, would, would come up with this use. If they don't, doesn't that seem odd? No, that's assuming that they. You're assume pers- you're assuming they're getting cold. Um, they don't. Cold doesn't seem to bother them. Yeah, and that's. Uh, I mean, when they're up there in Alaska, Central Canada, that sort of thing, it gets quite cold. They spend a lot of time in the All high right. country, especially in winter time. So. You know, and any other other game animals. I mean, you know, deer don't don't build any kind of shelters, right? Well, that's assuming that we, th- whoever that is, think it's thinks like a human. It it, it doesn't. Well, and I want to say, it, I think it's a great question. It's a it's a real. Um, I think it's kind of an obvious question. So, yeah, it's, um, I well, understand. You know, I, I imagine just like anybody, if you see a cave, you're going to go look at it, right? I mean, hey, for, I understand that. Part. Hey, Forrest, what about the higher muscle and bone density? How do you think that would affect uh, the creatures on with cold weather? Well, I don't know because your chimps and apes are the ones that exhibit the the spongy type of bones, which makes their bones uh, a denser. Uh, humans don't have that type of uh, bone structure in their bones. Um, the there is no indication that your higher primates, such as gorillas uh, or chimps, now they they build nests to sleep in sometimes in the trees, sometimes below the trees. Most of your chimpanzees go up into uh, the trees, and they don't feel, they will build some kind of nest sometimes, but they're not as extensive as what the gorillas do. Um, I think the gorillas, just by virtue of their size, they don't have, as, uh, they don't have predators that are as likely to attack them as uh, the chimpanzees would. Um, however, there's never been any indication that I know of of any primates today that use caves and cave systems however we do find a lot of these primitive um ancient forms of humans homo sapiens uh australopithecus and such as that in caves 
the only problem is um, the that sometimes they don't know whether they actually got drugged there by whether it be a a, a a hawk or an eagle or a leopard or something like that that actually preyed on them and then drugged them into the cave system. Those uh, ones that Berger found in, um, oh gosh, um, South Africa that were the Homo naledi, those guys were, I mean, there was tons of skeletons in a cave system. So it seems like they have, in fact, may have, in fact, been utilizing that cave system as a, of, um, I think he found upwards to 25 individuals in there. So they may have, in fact, been uh, utilizing those cave systems to uh, habitate in there. I mean, uh, I don't I don't know. But, you know, those are the ones that they they've actually dated. And those are the those are the peculiar uh, homo sapiens because. They exhibited very, very primitive forms, and I think y'all, <clears throat> you and I discussed this one day after uh, after the recording. They ex they exhibit primitive features that we also find on Bigfoot, and these guys, the earliest date they can put on them is two hundred and fifty thousand years ago, which puts them cohabiting the Earth with such. Uh, Homo sapiens as <laughs> Homo neanderthalensis mm -hmm. and uh, Cro-Magnon man and uh, Denisovians and then that mystery uh, group that we have now discovered that uh, there's Melanesian people that actually trace their heritage back to another ancient form of man. And so there's another uh, group out there that we don't even know about as of yet. So um, here we have got a primitive very primitive homo sapien that's living and cohabiting uh, looks like in caves at the same time as uh, the humans and humans were utilizing caves so I mean I don't know you know that one that we they caught uh, or, you know and it's the story goes and, and, and it's a story because like I said I've heard two different uh, uh, stories on that thing that they caught it and killed it in a cave here in Marble Falls outside of Marble Falls um, you know, my grandfather told me about the story. He said that they didn't kill it, but uh, that there are people in the the papers that you read about it that say that they did kill it. So who's who knows what the actual truth of the story is? Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know. <laughs> well, I would I would There's think no present primates that live in caves. I would think that a lot of these. Um, cousins of humans and, and ancient humans would use caves because they're less adaptive to cold weather and things like that whereas the sasquatch seems to be quite comfortable in it uh and, yeah. and it kind of goes back to my question i'm wondering if maybe the higher bone and muscle density plays a role in that well it certainly could i mean you've got but you've got here you've got the apes uh chimpanzees to be specific uh, can troglodytes and your uh, uh, gorillas that actually do have the higher uh, uh, bone density and they have the higher muscle density, and yet they're all in tropical regions. Yeah, they're so, not in a cold environment, so you wouldn't yeah. wouldn't know if they were would hold up better to that or not. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's not like anybody's taken any gorillas out and set them and turned them loose in uh, Alaska and said you're on your own. See how they <laughs> right <laughs> they do because I, I don't think they'd fare well. I mean, actually, I don't. Yeah, probably. You know, not. they're very adapted and very specific specifically adapted to the the regions they live in. I, I would think the Sasquatch is probably adapted to these kind of varying conditions over, you know, many centuries. Well, thousands of years, millions, millions of years possibly. Right. What do we have next, Tom? Okay, so this is from a different person, but this is very much related to the cave system. And this question is, there are two stories where there was one, and I remember I read that story two, three years ago, where somebody in California, and I think both of these are in California, actually, different locations, where caves were discovered to have, in a very chaotic, haphazard way, deposited clothing, equipment, um gear, all kinds of stuff. Some of it was, um, I think I want to say it's even a, there was like a survey transit from the late 1800s all the way up to clothing and, and cameras and gear, just, you know, knickknacks, stuff like mm -hmm. that, into the 1980s of, it's like somebody just came in and over a period of time just grabbed this stuff and deposited it into caves. So, and the obvious question is, are these, uh, you know, just like a uh, stash that Bigfoot has been stealing from people, and they just put it into caves? And obviously, we don't know the answer, but... Well, the only one that any, I know uh, of... Any ideas? The only one I know of that's a very, that was a likely cache of Sasquatches was in a location in Colorado. And um, a friend of mine found this out in the middle of nowhere cross-country hiking and it was stuff like that but it was in a little ravine it was out in the open it wasn't uh, wasn't in a cave or anything really so what all what was did you see it i didn't see it no he he told me did he give you any kind of an indication of what well just what like the things you just mentioned it was just odd things like somebody was a you know the the klepto out there just grab would grab things and then bring him to this location and deposit him. Yeah. And that's what this was. And it was interesting because it, it covered a very large span of, you know, late 1800s, uh, all the way through the you know, 60s, 70s into the 1980s. So as far as I know, there were no, no, no human remains, but this is just strictly. No, I've I seen, I've seen, do that? yeah, I've seen stuff like that, but, you know, you always chalk it up to either somebody's garbage dumping or, you know, Milo, you've been to those places with me up, up towards Mount Rainier. And sometimes oh, yeah. you find what looks like trash. And that's what you think it is, is just trash. All right. So that's uh, still an unsolved mystery. Okay. Um, this person wants to know, <clears throat> there's a story, We've, and I think most of us have heard this story, about a Bigfoot incident in the 1860s, 1880 period in the western United States um, is either Oklahoma or Missouri, where a tribe of Bigfoot had abducted several people, including children. And so they were pursued by an army. A massive slaughter of Bigfoot occurred. 
but a few of the soldiers were also uh, killed during the uh, you know recovering the bodies. One one soldier had their head torn off. Uh, so, what are your thoughts on this? I've never heard that story. <laughs> it sounds a little. I have. It sounds a little far fetched. I have. Have you? Yes. It. Um, and I wished I could. <clears throat> I wish my friend Chuck was here. Him being an Oklahoman, he could tell you it was an Oklahoma. Uh, it's actually quite a famous story, and um, the gentleman that actually led the soldiers in there was one of them that had his head ripped off, and um, as, if I recall correctly, oh gosh, I wish I could think of his name right now, um, he had kind of a French name, and they actually have a park and a city named after him, and <clears throat> it is um, also a story that the Indians will recount because they were the ones that were complaining about their children and their women being taken by these uh, Bigfoot and um, when they found them they said that there was a big dumping site of human remains and um, that they came upon before they actually came upon the um, Bigfoot and that there was a battle that ensued and they uh, they killed a few of the soldiers, but they killed the majority of the Bigfoot. But they had, in fact, these Bigfoot had been feeding on the, um, and I, gosh, I wish I could remember whether they were Comanche, Shoshone, or Chippewa, or what in that area. Um, but um, they had been feeding on these Indians and take, uh, taking women and children and babies and they'd been eating them, and uh, it was pretty a uh, pretty dreadful sight, from what I understand. So, but yeah, it is it is a they claim in Oklahoma that is it a historical account. First, where well, was this at? In Oklahoma. Yeah. Any y'all, y'all probably have computers in front of you, front of you. You might be able to look it up. And as I recall, I think the man's name was kind of like a it had like a French sound to it. Okay. I, just, yeah, I read I'm it several a, years ago. I'm having a brain fart right now. I can't remember what it was. You know, the, the one thing that comes to mind, Will, is we talked about it two episodes ago, was when you get a very, very large group of these things and they ran off. I don't know how detailed we got on it, but they ran off a, a group of people that they sh- that shouldn't have been able to right right they should have been able to hold their ground well i don't know let's uh go ahead and go on to the next question all right will what reports do you have on the swimming and diving abilities uh, abilities of bigfoot i think you've mentioned reports of them swimming major river rivers like the columbia mm-hmm. or the fraser <laughs> Do you think they could swim to Vancouver Island from the mainland? I think so, sure. In fact, I would bet our, I would bet if we had Tom Seward on, he would probably have direct reports of that, you know, from native sources. Yeah. Okay, and this is for uh, well, for both of you, but I'm gonna I'm gonna start with Forrest. Are there any apes that can swim significant distances? Significant distances. 
Yeah, well, and I'll leave that up to you to interpret that any way you want, but okay. let's just um, real rephrase it. Can they, any apes that swim? Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and as far as I know, the, uh, they all do this little dog paddle type thing. Uh, you know, I don't ever remember seeing a, a, a gorilla jumping in the water and swimming, but uh, that's not to say that they couldn't do it if they, have, if they were forced to do it. They don't have a proclivity for water, but... Uh, uh, chimpanzees will uh, swim around. I've actually seen petlins, uh dog paddling around in swimming pools. Um, macaques, I mean, you can't, you practically can't keep those guys out of the water. And they dive, they, they, and they stay underwater for a long time. And they go around swimming under the water. And they just dog paddle around having a glorious little old time. And I, I just have a feeling that they, if they had to, they could go quite, uh, quite a few distances, um, you know. So um, the probesis monkeys, the one with the, the big funky noses, uh, they like to get into water. Uh, and I'm sure there's probably other monkeys out there that I don't know about that probably do too. But uh, as far as swimming distances, no, I don't know anything about that. But uh, um, I'm sure if they were given the opportunity, they might do it. Or let me if they take had, it another... if they were forced to have to do it, they might. Well, let me, let me add one more element to this. Are there any apes or monkeys that you know of that are able to dive under the water? In other words, they can hold their breath. Oh, yeah, the macaques can. That's what I was saying. They, sw they swim around. They actually get high up in the trees, just like a bunch of little idiotic kids. You know, when you see these kids jumping off these rock cliffs and stuff into the water, well, that's what they do. They will climb all the way. If they can find a tree that hangs over the water, they will climb way up in those trees and then... Here go the kids. It's usually the younger monkeys. I don't see the adults so much doing it, but the, the younger ones, uh, they will climb up in there, and they will just, boom, away they go into that water. They love it. I mean, they're just like a bunch of little kids. And um, they will swim around underneath the water. And in fact, I've seen mothers go down underneath the water, and they have little babies attached to their chest. And you just, I mean, the first time I ever saw that, I was like thinking, oh, my God, she's going to drown that baby. She's going to drown that baby. And up they pop. The little baby will roll up onto the top of the mama, and she'll, the baby will have its head up above the water, and mom's just swimming around. And, I mean, she can go that way for a minute or two underneath the water. I mean, it's just it's amazing how they do it. I would think the Sasquatch, since they have spread out through virtually every corner of the planet, uh, would have adapted to you know, moving across bodies of water, you know, much like ancient people did. You know, well, haven't they had occurrences where uh, I've heard a few incidences, and of course, you have no idea whether these tales are true or not, but that fishermen have had them approach their boats. Oh, yeah. And that they, oh, yeah. they came up underneath the water mm -hmm. and then uh, attacked them out in their boat. Sure. Yeah, you, you don't want to have, if you think you're moored out, you know, a couple hundred feet away from the shore and they're not going to come out after you, forget that idea, because they will. And they have, uh, you know, stories of, of them going out and doing things like that. But uh, uh, there, was, wow. there was a story that TW sent from northeastern uh, New Mexico from a few years back where there were some, I think they were teenagers out in this small lake fishing at night. And one of these creatures came out there and turned the boat over. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a fun night fishing. No, they weren't too happy no. about it. 
Hey, I found that that guy's name is Joshua LaFleur. Does that sound like that story? Yes, that sounds Captain that, LaFleur, no. half French or Yeah. Captain LaFleur, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That, that's it. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Yes, it is. All right, Forrest, if you had to speculate, do you think Bigfoot would have separate oral nasal passages like chimps? Uh, Chimps can't choke when eating. I've heard about this. Uh, They can always breathe through their nose, even with a blocked esophagus. And I think this goes and goes into the whole thing about whether um, Bigfoot has speech ability, because we're the only ones technically that you know, we can have speech because of that bone. And can you go into that just a little bit? Well, it's the fact that we have a hiatal bone, bone, here I go again, uh, hyoid bones um, the, um, that prohibits us from being able to, to breathe. And if we're, if we're in a choking situation, we can't breathe at the same time. Um, animals, uh, have that ability to, uh, even though they might be choking on something that still can, uh, that's why you don't really usually see choking deaths among uh, animals because they got something lodged in their throat. Um, and uh, your apes and uh, monkeys are the same way. They don't have that hyoid bone um, um, that, that's our speech. That's the reason we have speech and they don't. Now, who's to say, I mean, nobody's had one on the block. Uh, so we don't know if, if it's possible that uh, a Bigfoot does have, have, have a hyoid bone in its throat. So uh, if they did, then that completely changes the whole perspective on the, what, whether Bigfoot's an ape or whether it might be a form of uh, human. Okay. Well, that's, I think that's the answer that we were looking for. All right. I have a, um, I have a question. Far away. So, um, Forrest, when, when apes, when, when uh, I guess, uh, when one dies, do they leave them in a spot or do they have like a burial place, like the walk of elephants kind of thing? Are you talking about apes? Yeah. Do, do they bury or do they put put them all in one place or is it just they they die and they just leave them at the spot they die uh most of them just leave them at the spot that they die the only time i ever see the removal of uh and almost all apes and monkeys do this female apes let me clarify that female apes and monkeys are the only ones that i've ever seen exhibit this when they have an infant die they will actually carry that infant around with them until that baby sometimes is absolutely desiccated. They will sit and swap the flies off of them and everything else, but they will carry that baby around on their chest, holding it to their chest uh, until it's nothing but skin and bones. And then at some point, then they finally let it go. And that's the only time I ever see, uh, you know, the actual movement of a dead uh, or a deceased monkey or ape and chimpanzees do it as well. And so do gorillas. Uh, They will carry those infants around with them uh, mourning their loss. 
And um, but I've seen I've actually seen incidences where they have beat to death a, a chimpanzees have beat to death a member of their uh, troop, and that that body is left laying right where they they leave it. It's not picked up and moved. They don't make any attempt to cover it up or anything. It's just left. Now, do they kind of avoid the area where they where it was killed? Mm, yeah, that I couldn't answer for you. I have no knowledge of that. Well, that's, I, it's I, interesting though that the that the mothers it's it's really feels like it's a sign of grief that they're more like you said mourning mourning the loss of their child. Oh yeah, well I, I have seen instances and. And of course, you know how I love I love the macaques, and and I I really get uh, <clears throat> I probably watch more of that on YouTube than I probably should because it just makes me mad because these videographers get out there and they do <clears throat> so many things that causes these uh, macaques to probably do stuff that they wouldn't normally do. But <clears throat> excuse me, I am so sorry. They have I know and in certain instances where these videographers have snatched babies, kidnapped them from these females because somebody pays them because they want that baby. And that mother will go around crying and crying and crying over the loss of that baby. She will just run up and down all over calling for that infant. And it's really, it's a sad, I mean, they do exhibit a large amount of emotional and, um, you know, sad despair is the only way you can, can describe it as it's just totally despair on the, the, the part of the mother. They love their little babies. Well, sometimes at, at weaning times, you wouldn't think that they did, but they really do. Hmm. So almost I mean, almost a human like trait. Okay. Yeah. Um okay, so Will and this is a question maybe for you and I and, and for our uh, Forrest as well and, and Milo. Hey guys, <laughs> since you obviously have proved to yourself that Bigfoot exists, what are the next big questions that you're trying to answer about Bigfoot? What would you like to accomplish now in terms of discovery? Well, I guess for me, in a nutshell, uh, I haven't proven to myself they're real. I, I didn't have any choice when there's one standing in front of you. Um, <laughs> I, I guess it would be to demonstrate that to the rest of the world. I like that. Yeah, that's that goes for me, too. Just like that. I mean, you can tell people until you're blue in the face that you saw one, but until actually that whole, you know, here it is. Even when it's right there, I wonder if they would really, you know, accept that fact. You know, Milo, actually, that's a good point, because I think that you can come out and you can provide the most undeniable evidence that they exist. Most people, many people are going to accept it and they'll believe it if the evidence is strong enough. And then you're always going to have a segment that or, you know, let's face it. Do you believe the earth is round or flat? I, th- I would say 99% of the people out there believe it's round. But you got a segment out there, and unfortunately, some of them are even uh, seem like intelligent people who believe it's flat. So um, who knows? Who knows where that, where that would t- 
take us on this topic. Um, I'm going to answer real quick. My question to me that's still a mystery is we don't know what they are. I want to know what is it. That's that's kind of where I'm at. So I don't know. Forrest? Good answer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's innate, but, you know, we have uh, we have a history of, uh, of uh, ancient bipedal apes out there. So, I mean, it's not an unforeseen thing that Bigfoot is nothing more than an ape. But I am certainly willing to concede, just like I said earlier about the hyoid bone, that uh, if they have one, if they do have a, uh, uh, a speech, if they do have a culture, I'm certainly, I will be the first one to say, hey, they're part of the, you know, they're, they're a different type of human, maybe. Um, but I'm not willing to go there now, um, until somebody proves to me otherwise, but we're still at the point of somebody even proving that they exist. I mean, you've got the, the Patterson Gimlin film that has <clears throat> only second to the Zapruder film. And I've said this before and, and it's analysis. I mean, it has been analyzed that many times by experts and it has never been disproven that it's not, uh, in fact, what they said it was. And. Uh, even though they've got some idiot out there that keeps claiming that he was the one that was in the monkey suit, but uh, we all know better than that. But uh, um, I just, you know, I get real frustrated, and I know you two do too, but, I mean, what are we going to do until somebody says, hey, they exist? And um, what what are we going to do then when somebody finally does admit that they exist? Where, what is going to be their standing in, in society and the world? Well, I think the next question is, I, th- I think it's actually going to open up a lot of doors for a lot of questions. And, um, you know, people are going to want to know, what are they? You know, there's just going to be a whole lot of things. Um, Will, this same person, and this is for all of us, I was also wondering what technology do you use now and what t- technology would you like to have that would aid your research and how would you use it? Teleport. <laughs> no, well, I don't have that and don't use it. So, <laughs> Hey, I'm saying in the future. Oh, no, well, yeah, if money was, if money was no object, what, what, what would you use? Uh, I just, um, I just have, higher quality gear of the same stuff I do use. You know, I mean, you know, and that's, that's actually a good point because here's the thing. The technology is one thing, but it's how the technology is used. Uh, it's like, well, we talked about this the other day. You can have a, a scalpel, which can do absolutely amazing things in the right person's hands and in the wrong person's hands, it's pretty useless. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, I spent some, I've spent money on, you know, equipment, um, you know, but I'm a working guy, so I don't have tons of money, so uh, I get what I can, but it would be nice to have much higher quality. Higher quality, and in the higher quality, a greater quantity of that. Right, and so you can like, really, and, and it would be for me, and it would be nice to have the I'm, time and the resources to be able to go do what I do instead of, you know, I either seem to have one or the other and they don't ever seem to be at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) 
Wait a second, you've got Robin's. the same problem the rest of us? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. where I was going to go with it, is the fact that if money was no object, man, go out there and have like a year-long expedition and, you know, that kind of thing, where you're out there. Oh, yeah, no, if I had I had the time and the money, I'd uh, this would be a done deal, the subject. I mean, you, we have the places, we know where the creatures are. It's just a matter of, you know, being there long enough you know with uh we have good equipment but it would be nice to have a little bit better equipment okay i'm going to rephrase that question a little bit because you, you kind of got me thinking what is some of the equipment that you would not use you just said nah forget it we don't need that uh, you know i don't know putting you on the spot sorry about that well it's a it's a case by case situation it's not there isn't a blanket term um you know and the stuff i use i mean my camera gear and stuff like that is pretty standard so i take it with me all the time whether i use it or not i take it same with the audio recording stuff and um, i have up my game a little bit you know for both of those here recently but um you know you can always have more professional type gear i'll put it that way well, I'm going to answer that the question that I just rephrased, and that is, I know what I wouldn't use. I'm not going to use a cheap pup tent in the middle of the, one of their habitat areas. <laughs> <clears throat> right. Well, I mean, yeah, you don't want to take the dog and pony show, never, um, needless to say. But uh, and, and, well, one of the things I wouldn't use and I don't use, I don't use GPS. Um, you know, I, I use okay. old fashioned topographic maps because, uh, you know, cell signal or isn't always that great and satellite signals aren't always out there. So, and you and I know Tom from the places we've been working recently, uh, you don't yeah. have to get very far away from the city and pretty soon you don't even have cell service or anything. So, um, that stuff is unreliable. Yeah. It, it's good. It's great when it works. And if you can hold it in your hand and says, I'm here now. Okay, great. But I'm preaching to the choir. There's no substitute for knowing how to use a map and compass. So the computer you want to use is the one located between your ears. Exactly. And know, and know how to use that map and compass. That's, that's essential. Okay, I think well, do you think we have time for one we more? We got time for one more. All right. Susanna wants to know. Susanna says, "Hello, crew. You once briefly mentioned the siege siege of Honobia and how not everything seemed to be legit. Could you explain what a Could you explain what exactly? Personally, I wonder why, if they really did kill a Bigfoot, nobody mentioned any blood or hair scattered." after which was taken as proof. I think if the body was taken away, it should leave something lying on the ground or at least a path where the body was dragged. And I think what she's talking about is other creatures recovering, you know, one of their dead uh, compadres there. Right. I'm not a hunter, so I may be wrong here, but I was just wondering what you think. And then, after that, she's got a bonus question for Will, but we'll take okay. this one first. Well, I... I can't remember where I heard it. Somebody told me that all of the uh, that the entire story was not 
what it seemed to be. There were there were pieces added or, you know, sensationalized that didn't happen. Um, I, I don't know. I, you know, I haven't talked to uh, uh, Mike. Was the guy we interviewed years ago, and what I was told it was actually his brother that it, that encountered most of these things, not him. But um, as far as the body goes, yeah, I, it was a bit of a red a red flag for me. Um, you know, sure, you could kill one. They have been killed. In fact, the new book I'm working on, there's a portion of it that um, there's going to be a number of uh, recorded incidents where Sasquatches were killed in that section. So they have been killed. Um the other creatures did take the body, and there's one of those stories uh, discusses that aspect as well. But there would be there would be residue. There'd be a lot of blood. There'd be things like that left over, and and I kind of wonder with that story <clears throat> why that some of that wasn't collected, you know, for testing. You know, and just as a side note, uh, if you kill one of them, there's typically retribution from the other members. Right. Yeah, there wasn't see a whole lot. I mean, the, supposedly the creatures kept coming around. This, this stuff ramped up, but um, I didn't hear the retribution like there would have been and have been in cases that we know about. We get some background yeah, you noise. Think. Do you hear that? I do hear. It. Bigfoot's listening in on us. <laughs> so let's see. We we got time for the bonus question, Tom. All right, bonus question, and then apparently she has one more. So the bonus question is, and I do believe Susanna is displaying a sense of humor here. Will, can Bigfoot breed with dogmen? Ah. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I'm not going anywhere near that. All right. <laughs> uh, I just, okay, we'll just, we'll move on. Okay. Um, okay. I was wondering the best way to stop gifting Sasquatch process. How, how do you stop that? If some say if you stop doing it, bad things are going to happen, like you know, vindictiveness, revenge, killing livestock and such. So what would you tell people who want to stop and be safe? Well, first of all, it's going to depend on where you're doing this. If it's out in the forest someplace, you can just stop and go away and don't go back to that location. And I mean, don't go back to that location. Uh, if it's at your home, then you got problems. Okay, um, and that's what she said. She goes, "Is there a way to tell the apes the game is over in a polite manner?" And I don't believe uh, etiquette and politeness is something that goes hand <laughs> in hand with these creatures. No, what you're going to have to do is, or there's several methods. I mean, first of all, see if they keep coming around when you stop stop the food. If they do, then you need to change up your routine. Any brush that's near the house has to be cut back at least 50 feet away because they don't like to come out in the open. You need to have light sensor or uh, motion sensor lights. You know, it, it has to be, the situation has to be very kind of unstable for them. They can't, they, they'll pick up on patterns. So you have to break up the patterns. And, and if you do that, they typically will go away. And like in your case, Forrest, we're, we're working on getting uh, the creatures to leave you alone. Yeah, I appreciate that. But you know what disturbs me, and I think it kind of, I think it's disturbing y'all too, is that now this has progressed to a daytime issue. 
Yes, that's a problem. So, you know, all the lights and the game cameras in the world aren't going to control that. So well, that's, that's where things like bleach come in. So, well, I've tried that around the house. Okay. So, and I and like to say, I haven't had any pro- more problems as far as I know around the house. But then uh, we've got, <laughs> uh, this week we've got a, predicted to be 104 here. So I, I've got the air conditioner going, so everything's closed up. Uh, yeah. And so... Uh, well, what you're doing is... you beat on the walls. I'm not going to know they're out there. <laughs> <laughs> what you're doing is you're, is you're marking your territory, so... Not necessarily just around the house, but like in the if you have a fenced yard, out around yeah. that because you don't want them. Yeah, to that's what I. That's house. what I actually did. That's okay. what I did. Yeah, yeah. that's mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing you want to be doing. So, but um, you know, we were just, you were talking before about uh, 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 Bigfoot. I just I was sitting here at the thinking about i don't know of anybody that wants to volunteer and this anthropologist is not going to do it uh you know like jane goodall going and uh sitting out and establishing a a home base with the uh, chimpanzees and uh diane fossey with the gorillas and and they really have more of established territories i think than bigfoot so i think it would even even if an anthropologist uh, wanted to do that, it would be very difficult. They'd have to, they more or less are going to have to follow them around rather than uh, establish a home base and then work out from that. It's, we had, we had it accidentally stumble into this when we did the occult investigation in Washington. Um, it just seemed to work out. My policy was to not, nobody in my team was to go out beyond the uh, the mowed yard there was a, there was a fence they had a fence a little barbed wire fence around the yard and my my policy was no one was to go out beyond that fence after dark you know in the morning in the daytime it seemed to be okay because the creatures had left the area so mm-hmm. over over the ensuing weeks it seemed we seemed to have established a you know kind of a boundary with the creatures you know where they would observe it and we would observe it and there seemed to be no problems. Um, they would come in there right up to the fences at night. Uh, family members, you know, and myself included, saw eyeshine. The family saw the creatures a few times. Uh, my team members sometimes did when they got there before I did. But um, it, the boundary seemed to work, and that was that was like an ideal situation. So I think it is possible, but you have to have the right situation, and you have to be able to recognize it. Well, what I guess the point I'm trying to make is that unlike uh, Jane Goodall uh, or even Diana Fossey, that going out there and actually sitting amongst them... You're not going to do it. It's not going to happen because you can't make any, uh, you know, sitting behind... You sitting behind a uh, established uh, perimeter is not going to give you any type of knowledge of their social interactions, how they... Uh, how a alpha controls his troop or uh no. group or what what you have as far as uh how the youngsters uh, the male young males at what age are they run off and and i mean that that was something that they had to establish over years and years of watching these animals and actually moving amongst them and <clears throat> of course we know that even uh jane goodall ran into uh, one male that on two uh 
alpha male that actually on two made two attempts on her life. Um, I can't even imagine what Bigfoot would do. So uh, how long would that last? Probably a day. Well, see, that's um, why it took me a dozen years to figure out the pattern of one group because they're so highly mobile and they have such big ranges. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it can be done, but it's it's very time-consuming and it's very difficult. Yeah. But still, you have no, I mean, uh, not discounting for all the knowledge that you do know about them. I'm not saying that, but still, you have no real... Uh, established oh, no. uh, concept of their uh, their social interactions, or how the alpha may act to uh, beta males, or even how they uh, how many females are in their troop, and, and, and you know all of the social interactions that makes up a right. um, you know monkeys and apes, and and I mean they do have established hierarchies within their groups, and I'm sure Bigfoot's probably the same way. Oh, they I mean abs- people are the same are. way. So yeah, <laughs> they know? they absolutely are. But yeah, you're right. I mean, mean, as far as the, you know, the very detailed study, um, we're not there yet. Yeah. And I I really, I'll be honest with you, I don't know, how how do you get there? You know? It's hard enough to do it even in these primitive societies when you get anthropologists that go out there and live with these primitive uh, uh, groups that, you know, they have to learn the language, they have to... um, you know, all the things they have to learn about these people before. And even then, even after they've learned the language and everything else, they still look out at these anthropologists as outsiders. And they, how do you know they've even told you the truth about, you know, things that uh, you question them about? So, uh, and I'm sure on a a lot of occasions they haven't because they just kind of look at you and think it's none of your business. (laughs) See that, that goes to my team and I needing the financial muscle, the backing so if anybody out there is an entrepreneur and wants to back this, you know, get a hold of us. Um, it can be done. We have the places to do it. We have several very, very active places right now uh, with tons of evidence that's coming out of them. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, not having to work and being able to work at that full time and, and doing this job. So uh, anybody, let's uh, wrap this up, folks, this segment. Uh, let's go around the table. Any final thoughts or questions? Tom? Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank everybody for uh, listening and uh, staying with us this till the end. Um, great show. Great, great question. So, folks, keep the questions coming because you guys keep the topic alive. I apologize. Got a little bit of a cold today, so uh, losing my voice. But anyway, uh, I want to thank all of our um, our audience out there for sending in really good questions. No bad questions. Milo, how about you? Um, I I like going with that whole thing, going, you know, kind of hermitizing yourself to go out there and, and be, but like you said, though, it's, they're nomadic and you're going to have to be trekking with them. They're, they don't stay around, do they? No, no, it's, yeah. it's, it's very, it's very time consuming. Uh, Forrest, how about you? Well, I just think we had some real thought-provoking uh, questions this time today. Yeah, very good questions, folks. All right. Well, having said that, great question and answer session, everybody. Uh, stay tuned for the third segment. In Bigfoot History. Chuska Mountains, Arizona, about 1967. 
Mrs. C.A. Cheeseman, Farmington, New Mexico, wrote to me that a Navajo family having a picnic saw an animal looking like a gorilla standing about 200 feet away watching them. It was on its hind legs and parted the underbrush with its hands. When they noticed it, it turned and walked off. The Dena people liked him, Tex Cobb. No sentiment was wasted on either side, but he and the tribesmen had a live-and-let-live understanding that was rare in those days. He stayed off their trap lines, and they stayed off his. If an Indian had a salmon net in an eddy, Texas found another eddy, and vice versa. Due to the fact that the Indians trusted him, we became involved with what today would be called, I suppose, an abominable snowman. I have since heard and read a great deal about the abominable snowman. I have seen the photographs of those tracks in the snow on a Tibetan mountain, and to me they are simply the tracks of a man with gunny sack or some cloth wrapped around his feet as protection from the cold, climbing slewfoot because the slope was steep and he had no crampons. But when I was a youngster roaming the north with Tex, we had never heard of the abominable snowman. We had, however, heard much about Gilyuk, the shaggy cannibal giant, sometimes called the big man with a little hat. Our adventure with Gilyuk occurred while we were camped in a pretty spruce park on Yellow Jacket Creek, south of Tyrone Lake. We had spent the entire summer on this mountain, Gert Nelchina Plateau, wandering about in aimless nomad fashion. Tex said we were prospecting and looking for fur sign. Maybe we were. He always had to have an excuse for enjoying the country. A commercial excuse, if he could think of one. Anyway, it was now late September. The beautiful time. No mosquitoes. The land ablaze with color. The fish and the meat animals, summer fat. The caribou horde gathering. And we were footloose and free, as perhaps men can never be again. This morning, Tex was making coffee, and I was down at the creek clearing a mess of grayling for breakfast when six Indians filed through the timber. They stood for a moment, solemnly regarding our four horses. To them, a horse was a rarity, a mysterious animal. They called them McKinley Moose, because McKinley was the only president they had ever heard of, and the horses were as big as moose. I followed them to the camp. Have you eaten? Tex asked them in Denna. They said they had eaten. Chief Stickman was with them. I had seen him once before at Eklinta Village, a squat, square-faced man, very dark, with long hair and quick-moving obsidian eyes. He was the Dena boss of this entire area, and his reputation was bad. But now, he had trouble that he couldn't handle. He told us about it, and as he talked, he kept standing first on one leg, then the other, balancing himself with the moccasined sole of the free foot against the knee of the supporting leg. I don't know whether it was habit or a medicine trick to ward off evil spirits, or both, but it was disconcerting. He had come into this area two days ago, he said, with some of his people to kill and cache caribou for winter use. But they had discovered that Gilyuk, the shaggy giant, was hanging around. They found his sign yesterday, and of course everybody knew that Gilyuk wasn't interested in caribou. Gilyuk ate men. 
What kind of sign? Tex asked. We will take you to see it, Stickman said. It's not far. After breakfast, we followed the Indians upstream a couple of miles to a burned flat on which a nurse crop of aspen and birch had grown. In the center of the flat stood a ruined birch sapling. It had been about four inches through and maybe ten feet tall. Something had twisted the sapling, as a man would twist a matchstick. The wood had separated into individual fibers. The bark hung in tatters. Stickman and his hunters stood back, while Tex and I looked the sight over. Moose often ride a sapling down to get at the tender upper twigs. So do caribou. But no moose or caribou had done this. This had been done by something with hands. It had happened yesterday, because the leaves of the sapling had not yet completely wilted. It wasn't the work of lightning. No burns. A freak whirlwind hadn't done it, because trees and brush a few yards distant were undamaged. The hard ground showed no tracks. We found no snagged hair on the brush. Absolutely nothing, except the incredibly twisted birch sapling. It was, without question, the eeriest sight I have ever beheld in the wilds. Stickman said, It is Gilyuk's mark. We have seen it before. I wish to make clear that to the Dena people, Gilyuk was no legendary creature their grandfathers had told them about. He was a reality, and they spoke of him as they spoke of bears and wolves. They saw his sign, and they saw him. He was a shaggy giant who wore a little hat and ate men. We want to ask you to camp with us until we have killed our caribou, Stickman said. Gilyuk doesn't molest white men. Perhaps he will not molest us if you are in the camp. Stickman had already told us that he was bivouacked on the shore of a pothole lake two hours to the eastward. Tex said all right, we would move to his camp in the morning. As he was still looking at the twisted sapling, his green eyes narrowed in thought. I couldn't take my gaze off of it either. Stickman said, thanks, Kosaki, a strange word of respect held over from the old Russian Cossack, and we parted company with the Indians. Next morning, I brought the horses in at daybreak. We ate, broke camp, and were putting on the packs when here came the Indians. All of them. All, that is, except Stickman. An old man told us Stickman was dead. Gilyuk had taken him. The chief had got up in the night and gone down to the lake, perhaps for water, but nobody knew. A squaw with a birch-bark torch found his red flannel underwear on the gravel beach. It had been torn off of him. There may have been tracks, but the entire hunting party had swarmed over the beach, and by daylight no tracker on earth could have made sense of the jumble. Well, until the day of his own death last July, while on a sentimental journey to a fateful spot in Cook Inlet, Tex was convinced that the cannibal giant Gilyuk killed Stickman. When asked if he believed in the existence of abominable snowmen, Tex would reply that he didn't think there were any around in Alaska nowadays, but that they had existed, at least one of them, a couple of decades back. Welcome. This is a series of three stories being brought to you by William Jevening and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The title of the first story is Grays Harbor County. Washington, July 1978. 
I was 16 at the time and visiting my relatives that live in Hump Tulips on the Bowes Road, Washington State, for the summer. I have always been a light sleeper, and that night was no different. I was awakened by the dog, a large German shepherd, barking wildly outside. I cannot say why she did not awake anybody else, because it was obvious to me that something was wrong outside. Not like a dog just barking at a rabbit or what not. All I can think of is I was visiting from the city, and not used to the quiet of the country or hearing a dog bark at night. I got up and looked out the window to see if I could locate her. I remember looking at the alarm clock. It was a little after 3 o'clock a.m. My uncle and aunt always had a large mercury light on a pole outside the front door as a kind of night light, porch light for the parking area, so it was easy to see. At first, when I looked out the window, I couldn't see the dog, as she was around the corner of the house, barking wildly like I had never seen her bark before. Then I saw her come around the front, and she was making a half-moon circle from the end of the house to the mercury light pole, as if to set up a perimeter of guard for the house. She was an average-sized shepherd, but very protective. I watched for a couple of seconds more, trying to see what she was so excited about. Then it came into my line of vision. It was traveling from the corner of the house toward the mercury light. It was massive and made that dog look like a pup next to it. I recall she barely came to his knees. The dog kept following it, barking and lunging threateningly, but it did not look like it was the least bit concerned. It was all one color, a brown, silvery color like a grula horse. It did not have particularly long hair, maximum length, maybe one and a half inches. Its hair reminded me of what you would see on any summertime animal that had lost its winter coat. You know, the animal is covered with hair, but not long hair. It was so strange the way that it swung its arms. It struck me as kind of silly looking. It did not have a hump on its head or back. It was just thick and big like a big man looks when he wears work coveralls over his normal clothes. He took three steps and was from the corner of the house to the tree line. Then the dog lunged at him one more time, and he turned and looked down at her. It was shocking, because my window was no more than fifty feet from where he was, and I could see his face plainly. He looked like a person, but his face was still the same shade, perhaps slightly lighter than his body, head, and neck hair. His eyes were looking down at the dog, so I could not discern any color, but his nose and lips were not monkey or ape-like. They looked human. He was almost to the tree line, and he looked back at the tree, lifted his left arm, and moved the tree bough aside so that he could step under the tree into the darkness. I was in shock. I climbed back in bed and covered up to my neck in the blankets waiting for the dog to quit barking. It seemed like it took forever. I barely slept the rest of the night. The next morning, at the crack of dawn, I woke up my cousins and told them what I saw. It was the summer, and the ground was very dry, so dry that there was a coating of dust in the gravel driveway in places that had once been mud puddles during the winter. 
We went outside, and I was showing them where he went, and I could not believe it. In one of those dust puddles was a footprint he had left just before he stepped under the tree. It was a perfect print of a large bare foot with five distinct toes. It was twice as big and wide as my size seven and a half foot. That was the clincher. Even if my mind wanted to explain away the huge figure as something other than a Bigfoot, it couldn't now. Well, everybody decided that I had been telling them the truth. As I stood there by the footprint, still in kind of a daze, I turned my head up to look at the tree bough, and it was way, way over my head. I am five foot four, and I remember raising my hands up as high as I could and jumping and still could not touch the branch. It was at least three feet over my head. He had moved it aside because it was going to slap him in the face. I never forgot that night, and I never will. It still gives me chills when I recount the story to others. It was clear that the creature was just passing through and intended no trouble, but it was still very creepy. Since that time, I have spent a lot of time in the timber by my house in the same general area, horseback riding and hiking, and have had many occasions to hear tree knocks, whistles, whoops, and even vocalizations. In fact, all of my family has heard those sounds, and I would love to see one again. What a privilege it was. That's the end of story number one. And now, story number two. The title of this story, Greenberry, Benton County, Oregon, March 2002. I believe it would have been Benton County, although we may have just crossed into Lincoln County, March 2002, around noontime. It was the middle of March, and Joe and A, names changed by request, and myself were in the Oregon Coast Range just above a little town called Greenberry about 30 miles west of Corvallis, driving up a BLM road on the southeast side of Buck Mountain, just south of Mary's Peak, which is the highest point in the Oregon Coast Range. We rounded a 90-degree turn to the right where several trees were down across the road, blocking any driving further up the road. The fallen trees had been cut, and we figured the area was zoned to be logged or something. It was strange that cut trees would be left laying across the access road, though. We were just driving around the countryside and chatting, not having much else to do. We decided to get out and have a little walk. It was misting. We climbed over the trees and were basically just walking and talking and drinking our first beers of the day when we came around another 90-degree turn, this time to our left. It was here that A first saw what he thought was a track. Not even thinking anything remotely like Bigfoot, we examined it, and it sure looked like a footprint to us. I then looked down, and beside my foot, I'd nearly stepped on it, was a very clear footprint that clearly showed five toes. The imprint was of a bare foot, no shoes. 
We couldn't believe our eyes. We began tracing the footprints up the mountain. The tracks were clear as day. One step, then another, and another, and so on. The biggest track was about fifteen inches by six inches wide. The distance between each track, moving up the hillside, was a greater distance than I could stretch my legs coming down. I do not know the exact stride measurement. It was beginning to rain now. Of all the imprints, probably only two or three were what I would call clear footprints. The majority were simply huge ruts that had been left by something big stomping up that grade. The tracks were very obvious and, as Joe mentioned, showed that something was scrambling to get out of there. At this point, Joe left to go get a camera that was in his truck. A and myself stayed and continued to look for more tracks. She retraced the steps to try and get an idea of where it had come in. I moved to the right of the tracks, looking for just whatever, when I came across a parallel trail of tracks. These were not nearly as large as the first set of tracks, and seemed to be moving in the same direction as the larger set of tracks. Then suddenly, the second set of tracks took a hard right and angled up to the road toward the general area where we started our walk at the cut trees across the road that blocked car access. I followed the tracks to the road, and then I lost them where they went up the mountain on the opposite side. He heard birds calling in the rain. Around this time, Joe arrived back with the camera, and I can still remember the first thing he said to us. Did you guys hear anything? We hadn't heard anything, but I had heard two loud bird calls that I distinctly remember thinking had a funny ring to them. Nothing bizarre or totally strange. I just didn't know what kind of bird it was. Joe was silent for a moment. Then he said, I heard birds call at the truck. Birds don't call in the rain. He was right. Any time you're outside, when a rain is coming down, listen. There won't be any birds calling. Next, he took a look at the tracks I showed him that I found. They were now pooling up with standing puddles of water. The rain was really coming down. Whatever made these footprints had crossed that road seconds before we rounded the corner. They heard us coming. Whatever it was down in that ravine could hear us talking and probably making plenty of noise on the gravel. The track makers had taken to higher ground in a hurry. Were they still there? I don't know, but they could have been, and we didn't see them. The area above the road we walked up on was much higher and heavily timbered. There were no odd smells, and we never felt like we were being watched, but the odd bird-like calls did have us talking later. Birds do not sing in the rain. That was it. We never saw what had made the tracks. They were not bear tracks, nor were they made by a big bull elk. The tracks were human-like, with five toes showing, not cloven hooves. The only other thing other than a Sasquatch that could have made the tracks would have been an enormous man without any shoes. But no one was up there. Certainly no vehicles, as the downed trees that had fallen across the main road prevented anyone with wheels access to this particular area. The terrain was extraordinarily steep and thickly wooded. Ranger slips up.
Interestingly enough, the very next day, Joe called a ranger or a forestry station nearby. He told them that he had found big barefoot tracks. The ranger quickly replied, Well, yes, there are bear up there, Joe interrupted. No, I mean big bear human tracks. What the ranger said next shocked Joe silent for a moment. The ranger said, Oh, you mean Sasquatch tracks? And we had those last year over in Colton. We didn't know what to make of them. Joe told me the man then suddenly clammed up, as if he suddenly realized what he had said. And that ends story number two. Story number three. This story is copyrighted by the Smithsonian, January 1974, Volume 4, Number 10. The search goes on for Bigfoot. A huge, shy primate, unknown to science, or a 160-year-old fraud. Whatever it is, it has left tracks all over the Pacific Northwest. They saw one last summer in Illinois. It rose up in the darkness, smelling of the slime of a sluggish river, and scared some carnival ponies and several citizens of the town of Murfreesboro before it disappeared. This was one of the hundreds of sightings of hulking, hairy, man-like creatures that have been reported over the last 160 years or so, but it was a most unusual one. Most of the sightings have been in the Pacific Northwest, where the creature is known as Sasquatch. That is also where most of the footprints have been found and where this creature was photographed on 16mm motion picture film. At least, maybe it was photographed. Most human societies harbor a deep-seated myth about such a creature. What child hasn't at one time or another worried about the boogeyman? But some people think a boogeyman of sorts exists the abominable snowman of the Himalayas, also known as Yeti, is perhaps the best-known candidate. The Indian tribes of America's west coast had a variety of names for the American Sasquatch, a Salish name. Yet another name for it is Bigfoot, and it is apt. The deeply imprinted footprints attributed to Sasquatch are some 4 to 7 inches wide and from 12 to 17 inches long. Clearly the spore of an enormous animal, or of an extraordinarily industrious footprint hoaxer. Can it be that the space age here is a huge living primate about which science knows nothing, and one that lives in our own country to boot? I recall discussing it with a widely known nature editor in New York, who laughingly informed me that the entire idea was preposterous that a Sasquatch couldn't possibly remain hidden in this day and age when the woods are crawling with hunters, campers, snowmobilers. Shortly thereafter, I was flying down through the river valleys of northern California, and the thought crossed my mind that you could hide a herd of elephants in any square mile of that country with no trouble at all. In California alone, the northern wildness is about the size of the state of Maine. There is plenty of room for Sasquatch and plenty of food and water. But do Sasquatches exist? Opinions are plentiful, evidence is in limited supply, and there is currently no proof one way or the other.
Most scientifically trained people who think about it at all believe it is all nonsense. But a few scientists believe in Sasquatch. And so does Peter Byrne, one animal tracker of legendary skill, who is currently camped out in the Dalles, Oregon, determined once and for all to prove Sasquatch's existence or lack of it. Byrne is a 47-year-old, Irish-born, former big-game hunter, who at one time specialized in taking sportsmen on tiger hunts in Nepal, on the edge of the Himalayas. Recognizing that the tiger was in serious trouble, he established a 50,000-acre tiger sanctuary and helped found the International Wildlife Conservation Society in Washington, D.C., which administers it. While in Nepal... Byrne had undertaken several major yeti hunting expeditions and then became interested in the American Sasquatch. Using his own resources and aided by a few small contributions, Byrne has been tracking Sasquatch for 35 months, collecting all the available sighting reports, following every lead, every footprint. Sasquatch first appears in White Man's Records in 1811, when an exploring party led by David Thompson found 14-inch by 8-inch footprints in Canada that seemed too large to be those of a bear. The Indian guides, though armed with guns, would not hear of pursuing these tracks. Over the years, as the wild areas of the Northwest were settled, there were many other reports of tracks and of meetings between Sasquatches and humans, in 1884, a construction crew was building the railroad near Yale, British Columbia, when the train engineer came upon a gorilla-type creature lying asleep or unconscious near the railroad. Awakened, apparently, by the sound of the train stopping, it began to climb the bluff with the train crew in hot pursuit. It was eventually cornered, felled by a rock dropped on its head from above, and held captive for several days in Yale. From the description, more than four feet tall and covered with hair and of extraordinary strength, it could have been an ape or a small or young Sasquatch. But captive apes were rare in the United States and Canada. The fate of Jacko, as the creature was named, is unknown because the local newspaper was being relocated at the time and subsequent issues carried no further mention of the creature. There are literally hundreds of reports in newspaper files in which one or more people have seen one or more of the creatures. Their descriptions, unlike those of UFOs, are almost always about the same. The creatures stand about eight feet tall, have no neck, and are covered with short hair, reddish-brown, and sometimes black below the knee. They have been likened to a long-legged gorilla and walk upright, in a flat-footed gait. Bears drop on all fours when moving. In March 1973, four fishermen saw a Sasquatch emerge from the forest, walk along a beach, and re-enter the woods. Most contacts have been similar, though the number of eyewitnesses range from one to a dozen people. The Sasquatch may be seen for just a few seconds as it crosses a road, or it may stay in sight for several minutes. A 500-pound footprint machine? Now, it would be fairly easy to dismiss all of this as mass hallucination except for several things. 
First, the reports, though separated by hundreds of miles and scores of years, do tend to match. Furthermore, eyewitnesses do not necessarily tend to come forward readily. Instead, most are reluctant to talk about their sightings, and many have insisted on anonymity, hardly the actions of publicity seekers. No one, it seems, likes to be laughed at, so eyewitnesses keep quiet and must be sought out. So far, Peter Byrne has interviewed more than 70 in his quest for Bigfoot, and he has followed Bigfoot's tracks. Mass hysteria cannot explain the footprints. Thousands have been examined, hundreds cast in plaster. Can they be brushed aside as fakes? Peter Byrne once followed such tracks for seven miles along a snowy mountain ridge, some eleven miles in the woods. This alone would make a believer out of anyone, says Byrne. Indeed, did someone really transport a 500-pound footprint-making machine back in there, one that could walk on two legs without supporting legs that would have left their own tracks in the snow? And all this where a hoaxer could not expect Byrne or anyone else to see them before they melted. Dr. Grover Krantz of Washington State University at Pullman is one of the few scientists who believes that Sasquatch may exist. He has examined dozens of casts of the footprints and sees significant differences between them and human feet. He has drawn the probable bone structure on the casts themselves and finds certain formations that would be essential for a 500-800 pound animal. If these prints were faked, he claims, they must have been faked by an expert in anatomy. The footprints are hard to explain away, yet they do not comprise what scientists would call hard evidence. Patches of hair and droppings found in the woods have been examined at the Smithsonian Institution. The material was found to be bear-like, but some was unidentifiable. One would think a photograph would be all that is needed to conclude that Sasquatch is real, but that too is not enough. Some years ago, a California rancher named Roger Patterson became interested in Sasquatch and began searching in interest. Four years later, in 1967, he exposed about 25 seconds of extraordinary and very controversial movie film. What money he made from this was spent on an additional four-year search, at the end of which he died a natural death. The Patterson film has been shown to a number of scientific groups and has been most carefully examined in every detail. It is, unfortunately, of very poor quality, taken with a cheap 16mm camera at a distance of more than 100 feet. Worse, Patterson was not sure whether the camera was set at 16 frames per second or at 24. A man in a fursuit... The film shows an upright creature, small for a Sasquatch, about seven feet tall, which walks across the field of view, turns to look at the camera, and continues on out of sight. It left fairly small footprints, about fourteen and a half inches long, which would be strongly commensurate with its height, though there is disagreement about this among anatomists. Not just scientists have examined the film, however, 
What is probably the world's best and most famous animation studio examined it carefully and declared they thought it was a living animal, not a man in a fursuit. In fact, they said that the only firm in the world capable of faking such a creature successfully was their own studio, and they hadn't done it. In London, Dr. Donald W. Grieve, an anatomist specializing in the human gait at the Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine, analyzed the film frame by frame and made detailed studies of factors such as angular leg movements, stride length, and the time of leg swing. He concluded that if the framing speed were 16 or 18 feet per second, fakery was unlikely, but at 24 feet per second, it could be a very clever fake. Dr. Grieve has written that his impressions oscillated between total acceptance of the Sasquatch to irrational rejection based on an emotional response to the possibility that the Sasquatch actually exists. More recently, Dr. Dmitry D. Domsky, chief of the biomechanics at the USSR Central Institute of Physical Culture in Moscow, has studied the film. Like Dr. Grieve, he has made exhaustive measurements of all parts of the gate and also the torso swing when the creature turns toward the camera. He says that the walk, as demonstrated by the creature in the film, is absolutely non-typical of man, and that he does not believe the film was faked. The evidence of the film is less impressive to a distinguished British physical anthropologist, Dr. John Napier, formerly of the Smithsonian Institute. In a recent released book, Bigfoot, the Yeti and Sasquatch in Myth and Reality, he concludes that the Yeti or abominable snowman of the Himalayas is surely a myth. As for Sasquatch, the Patterson film, he says, is inconclusive, even given the capacity which most humans have of deluding themselves, Napier finds the many eyewitness reports persuasive, and the footprints conclusive. Either some of the footprints are real, or all are fakes, he writes, and the latter seems to him to be impossible. I am convinced that the Sasquatch exists, he goes on, but whether it is all that it is cracked up to be is another matter altogether. If Sasquatch exists, then what is it? Napier suggests that the best candidate for the ancestors of Sasquatch is Paranthropus, an evolutionary offshoot of the course of human evolution, an ape-like vegetarian that lived some two million years ago, according to fossils found in Africa. As Napier points out, if Sasquatch does turn out to exist, the zoologists and anthropologists will have a great deal to explain. For now, the best hope of settling the question of Sasquatch's existence is Peter Byrne. No scientific group has ever undertaken a serious search of any magnitude, nor does it seem likely that any will soon. There is a considerable number of weekend warriors who go forth heavily armed to seek the Sasquatch in the name of the sport. Of the handful of serious searchers, many also believe in killing the first one they see. Canadian John Green, for example, has said, Gun it down, cut off a piece if you can carry it out, and get out of there. Peter Byrne considers this approach inhumane as well as unnecessary, 
especially because the Sasquatch, if it exists at all, is a rarer species that furthermore might prove to be subhuman. Byrne carries a tranquilizer gun with him as he stalks the wilderness and plans to immobilize his prey long enough for a group of scientists to arrive and examine and photograph it. Since its existence has not been shown in any approved manner, the Sasquatch does not enjoy the protection of other rare and endangered species except in Skamania County in Washington, where an ordinance was passed in 1969 prohibiting the wanton slaying of a nocturnal primate described as an ape-like creature or a subspecies of Homo sapiens. For now, Byrne operates out of his headquarters at the Dalles, Oregon, following up every lead that comes along. He has built an observatory overlooking an area where Sasquatches have reportedly been seen regularly. In seven out of nine successive years, he is often asked why, if Sasquatches exist and are so large, that they are so seldom seen. One could draw a parallel to the cougar, which certainly does exist in the Pacific Northwest, but is shy, wary, alert, and avoids humans quite successfully. Many people have lived 40 years in remote areas without ever seeing one. Says Byrne, there are perhaps only one or two hundred Sasquatches spread over an area of thousands of square miles. You can see that the population density is very low at best. Then consider that you must also have a human at the same time and place to do the sighting, and you begin to see the problem. And the Sasquatch is basically very shy, and has far sharper senses than man's. He can easily avoid human contact. As if this weren't enough, whenever a Sasquatch does show his face, likely as not, someone tries to kill him with a gun. Can you blame them for avoiding humans? This is the end of the three readings. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This collection of stories is being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Grand Marais, Cook County, Minnesota, 2011. Snowmobilers spot Sasquatch in Superior National Forest. My sighting occurred in Minnesota. The nearest city to the sightings is Grand Marais, Minnesota. The sighting was in the Superior National Forest on January 29, 2011, around 3.30 in the afternoon. The area has many lakes, and this sighting was near a tributary to one of the lakes. The nearest road to this area is Gunflint Trail. What I and my sister saw that day was incredible. We were snowmobiling in the back country of northern Minnesota when my family and I were approaching a downhill section of the trail we were on. There was a clearing on the hillside above us where there was a break in the trees. As I began my descent on the trail, I happened to look up and spotted something in the clearing about 200 yards above me. My sister and I were at the back of our group, so we both slowed to a stop to see what caught my attention. When we looked at what I saw, we observed a tall, man-like creature watching us. It stood there for about a minute, then reached up, grabbed a branch, and walked off into the trees. The creature we saw was maybe seven feet, and was dark brown in color, with darker areas around the face and chest area. It had long arms and a very human-like appearance, with a high forehead area. 
We grew up in this area and know the local wildlife extremely well. This is not a bear or moose. We have never seen anything like this before. My family has been somewhat skeptical about the sightings of these beings, so when we saw it, it really frightened us. Sorry, no photos, because I was on a snowmobile, and it is rather hard to carry a camera in an easily accessible place. We circled around and could see large barefoot tracks in the snow. The snow is so deep in Minnesota this year, so it was hard to get close enough to get any pictures of the tracks. But you could definitely tell that a two-legged creature passed through the area where we saw it. I wish I had more evidence, but unfortunately I never dreamed that I would ever see something like this, so it really stunned us. My sister doesn't want to go there again, but I would really like to go back in the summer to see if there's anything to be found. This definitely made me a believer in Sasquatch. We did not report it to any authorities for fear of being ridiculed. My sister and I wish to remain anonymous for this same reason but we would like the rest of our story to be shared so that others will know that they are not crazy if they see one of these creatures. Anonymous in Grand Marais, Minnesota, February 2012. That's the end of story number one. Story number two. A story out of Siskiyou County, California, approximately 1996. My name is Mark Kennedy, and I have a good story. It happened about ten years ago while a crew of twelve, including myself, was working a contract for the Forest Service to clear a couple miles of wilderness trail. I believe it was our first night at this particular spot, which was an area in the north end of the Trinity Alps. It was about twenty-six miles into the wilderness zone of the Trinity Forest. Camp was about five miles off the road in a beautiful meadow with a small lake called Red Cap Lake. We were done with our second day of work on this particular trail. It was a trail that took you through the prayer rocks of the Hoopa and Yurok tribes. Being in the Trinity Alps, obviously, we were really high up. We started at about 5,000 feet and maybe went up another thousand. The trail was about 10 or 12 miles long and split about three miles south of Red Cap Lake. One trail took you down into one of the many gorgeous secluded valleys in the Alps. The other took you to a point. Literally, the end of the trail was on a point that extended out quite a few feet from the true edge of the cliff. At that point, we were about 2,000 feet above the forest below us, so we were very remote. In the meadow, our first night there, we split into two groups trying to find the best camp spot. Really, not hard to do. The meadow was just about twice the size of a football field. Half was all knee-high green grass. The entire west side of the meadow was a small lake. You could catch pan-sized trout all day long in that little lake. Now, our meadow was off the main trail which rode the peaks of the mountains we were on. You walked down into this meadow from the north end, and as you walked, you got a bird's-eye view of the entire area. At the south end of the meadow was an extremely rocky cliff that rose above the lake about 200 to 300 feet with the forest ending right at the edge at the top. So, now you understand the area a little as I tell this story. We were just finishing our nightly session to end the day around the campfire. Both campsites were at the south end of the grass near the rocks, not far from one another. 
Everybody had just grown quiet as we all were drifting off to sleep. Suddenly, there was this god-awful screaming, howling-like noise that echoed through the meadow to make it sound like the screaming was coming from all directions. And for what seemed to be forever, the strange noise finally stopped and was followed up by one of the trees at the top of the rock cliff getting pushed off. I swear that tree must have hit every single rock that was in its path on the way down. And as it grew closer, the more petrified I became due to its sounding like it was right on top of our camp. Finally, the crashing noise came to a stop without ever landing on someone's tent. I still couldn't move, though. I was frozen position. And I still couldn't move, though. I was frozen position and seeing the brightest shade of yellow I've ever seen. I think the others were, too. Nobody wanted to come out of their tents, but everybody wanted the reassurance of the others. The rest of the night was uneventful. The next morning we were all around the campfire, sounding like a bunch of old biddies gossiping about the night before. We found the tree that came down. It was a full-grown fir. Must have been a full-sized tree when it started down the cliff. Wasn't much left of it when it got to the bottom. I have never heard that strange scream since, and have been back in the woods plenty. None of us could come up with a reasonable explanation for what we heard that night. Shortly thereafter, we were joined by a guide who was Native American. This guide informed us that the prayer rocks I wrote about earlier are on sacred ground, and it is believed that there is a Bigfoot protecting that whole mountain. The guide also went on to say that the noise has been heard before, but in other places. We discussed how big of a creature it would take to push over a full-grown pine or fir tree. We know it wasn't a bear, unless bears are coming up with horrifying new screams. So, it wasn't a bear, but it had to be big and strong. The tree circumference was about four, maybe five feet. And, we concluded from memory of seeing the tree, it was about fifty feet tall and very much alive. At least the parts we were looking at came from a live tree. Nobody would climb up the easy rocky cliff to see where the tree used to be located, so I couldn't tell you if there were any footprints or not. But I can say that this story was backburnered in my memory to tell at the campfires for entertainment. It became very interesting when I heard one of many documentaries about this screaming, howling-like noise that the Bigfoot has been known to make. When I heard that, all of a sudden, that night needed to be shared. This is the end of this story. Story number four. August 2007, Lake Tahoe, Placer County, California. Tracks found 18 inches long, 9 inches wide. I was camping last August with my nephew north of Lake Tahoe. We had been in a moderately developed campground, Crystal Peak Overlook, about 20 miles northwest of Reno, Nevada, where we live. There, my nephew made friends with another little boy, and I started talking to the other little boy's grandmother. She told me how her husband and son had found these Bigfoot prints that May along a creek above another nearby campground, Dog Valley Creek. They reported that in one print they could even make out separate tow tracks. They told a ranger who gave them some plastic tape to mark the spot. 
That got me curious, so we moved camp the next day to Dog Valley, a primitive campground. This is on the dry side of the Sierras at the Timberline, which is about 6,000 feet. Generally, the granite soil of the Sierras doesn't sustain much vegetation, but in this area several small streams converge to make a marshy pasture with a lot of biodiversity. We hiked up the creek that flows through the campground. It was a moderately steep climb. About a hundred yards up, I spotted the bits of tape tied to sticks, stuck in the ground, in a particularly thick patch of trees. The forest floor was covered with pine needles, but you could still see the depressed area of the prints sunk in the soil beneath leaves. In August, when we were there, even I, at over 200 pounds, didn't leave a footprint. But perhaps in May, in the deep shade, the ground had been muddy enough to take tracks. There were three prints marked out, but only one was still the outline of a full foot. However, I could no longer make out any separate toe impressions. It was about 18 inches long and nearly 9 inches wide. All the pictures I took came out pretty useless. Only the one where I put my bare foot in the tracks gives you any idea of size. The area is about 20 miles from human habitation, but gets maybe a dozen people a week off-roading during June through October. The roads to the area aren't cleared in the winter, so there's hardly anyone there until May. The area is in the rain shadow of the high Sierra Peak, so even in winter there's probably less than a couple feet of snow, and it has lots of springs. I'd guess this area would have edible vegetation, if not all winter, at least very early in the spring. This area is not too far south of the Cascade Range, where there are more Sasquatch reports, and might be the sort of area a species might migrate south to for the winter. My nephew asked if the footprint could be made by a really tall person, like a basketball player, so when I got home I did some net research. 18 inches would be a shoe size. 26. Many, many E's. The nearest I found was a guy 8 foot 4 who wears a size 25. There are less than a dozen people in the USA that tall, and most use canes or crutches and wouldn't be up to a barefoot hike in the mountains. I don't have a scanner, but I'll see if I can find a friend to scan the one halfway decent photo to you. Yes, I did have a camera, but it was a little 35mm disposable, and the footprint I found is hard to make out, and the markings on the measuring tape I had in one picture can't even be made out at all. There may have been three prints, but only one was clear enough to be a definite footprint. Gina Bagney, date Friday, 1st of February, 2008. That's the end of story number four. This next story is entitled Wichita County, Arkansas, 1940s. I am 75 years old. I was raised in the county of Wichita in Arkansas. We used to hear Bigfoots during winter time. Dad says they were panthers. Till Dad and his brother saw five Bigfoots in a pool of water at a river bottom. My uncle never got over that shock and would not go into the woods again. Dad said they were ugly and the females had breasts that hung down to here, pointing to his body. 
I recall laying in that broad shack. It was cold, listening to them scream and scream, and they did a lot. When I was all of five years old, my dad was out running trap line and doing some farming in the summertime. It was at this time that our canned goods began to go missing from our smokehouse. One time, whole smoked ham disappeared. We could not figure out who was taking the food. My dad told mother that he thought someone or something was following him when he was out running his trap lines. One day he spotted someone. The little fellow was about four and a half feet tall with hair all over him. It also had a humped back and was very ugly in the face which had facial hair. Dad began talking to it and leaving food for the little fellow. It wasn't long before when my dad would go into the woods and holler, the little guy would suddenly appear. We named him Little Sam, which was a name my grandpa had. Nobody knew about Little Sam outside of our family. All those years, Dad was in touch with Little Sam. I only saw him two times in my childhood. After I got married and moved to Oklahoma, my mother wrote me and told me about Dad and Little Sam, saying that they had not seen Little Sam in some time, but they went looking for him and found him dead. When I was reading the letter, I started to cry. It was very sad. Little Sam never uttered a word that I heard about, but he grunted. This is the end of story number five. This is story number six. Wild Man in McHenry County, Velva, North Dakota, 1908. The Stevens Point Journal, Stevens Point, Wisconsin, Saturday, February 16th. 1908. Captured a Wild Man. Curious find recently made at Velva, North Dakota. The journal is in receipt of a clipping from a Velva, North Dakota paper from J. Thomas, who is formerly a resident of Keene, a son of Mrs. John Thomas, who still lives at Keene. It relates to the discovery of an alleged wild man near Velva, not far from Mr. Thomas's home. It is stated, for three years there have been rumors of this wild man being seen by persons of veracity, but he had never been encountered at close range until a few days ago, when two cattlemen who were out hunting suddenly came upon him face to face as he emerged from a thicket of brush. One of them succeeded in throwing a lasso around him, and before he could escape, he was dragged to a tree and bound round and round with the lasso. Later he was bound hand and foot and carried to town on a dray, where he was imprisoned in a basement. His only clothing was a loin girdle of sheepskin tied with binder twine. He had not been shaved or had a haircut in years, and being a man of an extremely hairy variety, he presented a very grotesque and wild appearance. His eye-teeth are reported to be unnaturally elongated in the form of tusks. He refused to talk or eat anything, but drank water like a horse, half a pail at a time. The singular part of it is that 
this man has always been seen within two miles of the village of Velva. This is the end of story number six. Story number seven. Montgomery County, Arkansas, June 2008. On May 26, 2008, while the writer was in Clark County, Alabama, with area researchers, information was received by telephone from C.K., an Arkansas RFP research project investigator, that a married couple in the rural Montgomery County, Arkansas, had found evidence and had heard sounds that indicated more than one reclusive forest primate was foraging on their property at night. That information had been submitted to C.K. by the adult son of the woman who is joint owner and resident of the property. On June 7, 2008, C.K. and the property owner's son and the writer drove to the site and met with the couple. We arrived about 3 o'clock p.m. and left shortly after 11 o'clock p.m. The couple are in their late 40s and both have daytime employment in Hot Springs. They have purchased a 16-acre tract of land in Montgomery County and plan to build a home on it later. The north side of the property slopes to a small spring-fed creek. That hillside and the creek bottoms below are densely forested with various hardwoods, pine, and cedar. The underbrush has been cleared from the area of the planned home site. Along the creek there is a very thick undergrowth of vines and brush. The land south of the creek was at one time cultivated, but it is now overgrown in brush, vines, and small trees through which trails have been cut with a bush hog. Throughout the property there is a prolific growth of muscandine, summer grape, and blackberry vines. There are at least two pear trees in the old cultivated area, although the one seen by the writer appears to be ornamental Bradford pear. A neighbor told them that he had gathered pears from one of the trees. Earlier this year, the owners obtained utilities on the property, and in late February or early March, they opened a driveway through the timber on the north portion of the property. In late February of this year, they purchased a new travel trailer and installed it about 75 yards from the county road that is the northern boundary of the property. General Information About the Area the actual location of the property is not disclosed at the owner's request. The property is within two miles of a river, which is a popular stream for canoeing and wade fishing. The site is within the foothills of the relatively small but rugged Caddo Mountains, which adjoin the southern flank of the Wichita Mountains. The area contains a large population of deer, turkey, and raccoon. The area has some cougar and no doubt many bobcat. A large male cougar was reportedly killed within one half mile of the property a short time ago. During this initial visit to the site, the writer noted a very fresh cougar track in the dust alongside the county road near the home where a wide, well-used game trail crosses the county road. While the area is expected to contain all the other small animals and birds common to this part of the state, it was surprising that no coyote sign was seen around the property, and when asked, the owner said they had never heard coyotes in the area. Summary of Events After moving into the travel trailer, the owners built a wooden porch patio underneath the trailer's retractable awning.
While neither of the residents are hunters, and neither own a firearm, they are both avid bird and animal watchers. They have installed feeders for birds, and began putting out dog food and scraps for the raccoons. For some time the couple had been spreading corn on the ground, in a spot in the woods, in front, east of the trailer, and at another location on the opposite side of the trailer as food for the deer. Sometime after they started putting out corn for the deer, they found a carcass of a deer near the west side feeding area. The witnesses stated that one of the deer's front legs and its head had been torn off. The head was found a few yards away, but the leg was partially eaten nearby. Both of the deer's back legs were broken, and much of its hind quarters had been eaten before the carcass was found. They stated the deer's body cavity and stomach had been torn open, and the internal organs had been removed. There was undigested corn and corn mush inside the body cavity and spilled outside the carcass. When the carcass was again viewed the next day, they saw fresh blood and an exposed shoulder blade which indicated something had fed on the carcass overnight. A week or so later, another deer carcass was found at the other baiting site in front of the trailer. Both of the deer's back legs were broken, and the carcass torn open and partially consumed. Shortly after finding the last deer carcass, the couple stopped putting out corn because they thought a cougar was ambushing the deer at the baiting locations. A day or two later, the couple found an injured dog lying beside the porch early one morning. They don't own the dog. When they stepped outside, the dog managed to get up and walk away, but there was a large bloody area on the ground where it had been lying. Shortly after seeing the injured dog, they found out that another dog, a Rottweiler weighing close to 200 pounds and belonging to the neighbor, had been attacked or otherwise injured. Something had torn off one of that dog's back legs. According to the couple, the dog somehow managed to return to his owner's home and still was alive. The couple said that now the large dog usually just stays on the porch and will no longer leave the owner's yard. Investigators note, when C.K. and the woman's son and this writer were leaving the couple's home site and driving through the woods road toward the county road the night of the initial meeting, C.K., who was sitting in the front passenger seat, told me there was a deer in the woods on my side of the vehicle. I stopped and saw an animal that I at first thought was a coyote moving through the woods. As I entered a more open spot, we saw that it was a large dog. We then drove away. The next night, about 8.30 p.m., the property owner called to tell me that when he went outside early that morning, he found a dog badly injured at the old baiting site east of the trailer. He said that it appeared the dog's back or its hips had been broken. He said at the time that he did not think that the dog would survive, although he said the dog managed to drag itself away the next morning. From his description of the dog, it was the same one that the three of us had seen the night before. Shortly after finding the deer carcasses, the husband spoke to a neighbor about any strange things that had occurred on the neighbor's property. The neighbor reportedly told him that five of his sheep had been killed and ripped apart inside an enclosure. When asked what he thought had killed the sheep, the neighbor said he thought it was dogs because he found some type of terrier inside the enclosure when he found the dead sheep. 
The couple stated that they had often sat outside on the patio porch at night and early in the morning during the week. He arises about 4.30 a.m. on weekdays to make coffee, and she joins him outside for a few minutes later. They both leave for work about 5 a.m. They stated that on many occasions when they stepped outside before daylight, they would hear the sounds of something crashing through the woods and brush near the trailer. They assumed it was deer bounding away, although they thought it was odd that deer would make such noise leaving the area. They said that on several occasions they had heard loud, ape, or monkey-like sounds from the adjoining woods while sitting outside late in the evening and at night. Recently it became apparent to them that at times the sounds were being made by more than one animal. A few weeks ago a relative found a very large, about 18 inches long, track in a fire ant hill near the creek. The residents found another such track in one of their small vegetable gardens located northeast of the trailer. On the day of this initial visit, the writer observed two recently made tracks of about the same approximate size in the leaves and soil west of the trailer. The property owners also reported that some of the suet blocks used to feed birds were torn down and removed. They supposed that raccoons had taken the food even though the couple thought they had suspended the blocks out of the reach of those animals. The husband began using wire to secure the door of the wire suet baskets so that raccoons could not open them if they managed to get them. Although the wife stated she could not open the baskets with her hands after her husband wired them shut, something continued to tear the baskets down and open them to obtain and consume the suet blocks. Recently the couple began putting up hummingbird feeders. Two of the feeders are small, but one holds about a quart of sugared water. A few nights ago, when the large feeder was nearly full, something reached the feeder and drank the entire contents except for some spillage that coated the outside surface of the container. The feeder was elevated and suspended away from a tree trunk on an L bracket. Because of the position of the container and its capacity, the couple thinks it is unlikely that raccoons emptied it, although they concede that a raccoon might have been responsible. Other details. While completing this initial report, the writer telephoned the reporting witnesses at 8.40 p.m. on June 10th to ask about a few details. After clarifying the details, the husband asked if he could pose a question to me. When I told him that, of course, he could, he asked if I had ever heard whooping-type sounds, which he began to imitate over the phone. The sounds he made were nearly identical to the whooping sounds attributed to the reclusive forest primates. When I told him the possible source of the sounds, he said that both he and his wife had heard those sounds about twenty minutes earlier, coming from the opposite side of the creek and downstream. After some discussion, he said that he might go onto the porch and make those sounds to see what would happen. I advised him to be extra careful because the animals might be much closer than when he heard them originally. This is the end of this collection of stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. 
All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there. <laughs>